All right. Well, hello there. Uh, welcome to our Deadly Analysis Midsummer Festival. Uh, we have a fun night planned. Uh, by the end of tonight's podcast, we will have enjoyed such festivities as uh, Skin the Gym, one of my favorite games of all time. We basically start with Jim's leg. We work our way up. I'm just going to stop there. Don't want to go any further than that. Um, kind of jumping ahead of myself. We're also going to be playing a game called Into the Void, where my co-host uh, Ben and I proceed up a steep hill. We thrust ourselves off, and basically, whoever gets the most hang time, essentially by the time they hit the rocks, uh, is going to be crowned keeper of the abyss. I really look forward to that. That's going to be the game to watch out for. Uh, lastly, our co-host Shayra is going to host yet another orgy another orgy, uh, in which the goal is basically to have all of the ecstasy-induced moaning like sync up into one singular moan, you know what I mean? Like, Shayra's essentially going to be a conductor of sorts, uh, producing pleasure music, if you will, uh, to accompany the backdrop of tonight's podcast. So look forward to that. Uh, and we also have uh, another Ben here tonight. Um, we don't have any games for him. He's already played his game. Ben, I don't know if you know this, but everything you've eaten today has a little bit of each of our pubic hair in it. So... Enjoy that. Enjoy that. Uh, so we are here to discuss Ari Aster's 2019 horror film, Midsummer, uh, which is his follow-up to what I think is the best film of 2018, which was Hereditary. I've pretty, pretty much never been the same after Hereditary. And so I had huge expectations for uh, Midsummer, And in my opinion, it did not disappoint. So uh, Midsummer follows the story of Danny, played by uh, Florence Pugh, and Christian, played by played by Jack Rayner, who are a young American couple with a relationship on the brink of falling apart. But after a family tragedy keeps them together, a grieving Danny invites herself to join Christian and his friends on a trip to a once-in-a-lifetime midsummer festival in a remote Swedish village. And what begins as a carefree summer holiday in a land of eternal sunlight takes a sinister turn when the insular villagers uh, invite their guests to partake in festivities that render the pastoral paradise increasingly unnerving and viscerally disturbing. So here are my like really quick initial thoughts on Midsummer. As always, this is a spoiler-filled analysis. So if you haven't seen the movie, watch at your own risk. Um, this movie struck me as a kind of equal but opposite version of Hereditary. And what I mean by that is in Hereditary, um, like Hereditary is a very dark and enclosed film, whereas Midsummer is very bright and open. Like everything takes place in bright, wide open fields, not dimly lit you know, dinner tables and tree houses. Yet at the same time, both of these movies prey on our deep psychological need for various sorts of relationships, right? So in Hereditary, Astor played with our intuitions about family and heritage. And I think in Midsummer, he plays with our intuitions about empathy and community, right? Like needing to be comforted and heard. So both films, to a certain extent, traverse the relational. Uh, both films start with characters who face a tragedy. So in Hereditary, Annie loses her mother, and in Midsummer, Danny's faced with the murder-suicide of her sister and parents, and is looking to a person who is very unequipped to give her what she needs, namely her boyfriend, Christian. And this is a weakness that Astor will exploit as one of the central pieces of Midsummer. And both of these movies, I think, especially Midsummer, give us a character with a gap, right? Someone who's missing something, looking for something, uh, trying to fill a post-tragedy void, right? And they're open to influence at, at that point. They're, they're vulnerable. And in both films, that void is going to be filled with a kind of worst case scenario. And that seems to me to be the horror and the MO of Astor's films. Find a weak spot in the human condition and exploit it as far as it can go. 
uh, you know, tweak a very fundamental human longing and push it into some of the deepest expanses of the disturbing and the macabre. Um, you know, Midsummer is clearly a movie uh, that that's largely about codependency in many respects, and I, I'm I'm sure we'll hop into many examples of how this is expressed in the movie later on. But the ending of the movie, in particular, the very last shot in particular, actually, is one of one of the most disturbing scenes of any horror film, maybe ever, to me. Um, by the ending of this movie, uh, you know, Danny hasn't broken away from her codependency; she's doubled down on it. Right? She's gone from one codependent relationship, namely being with her boyfriend Christian, to another, the Harga people. Um, and the last shot of this movie in particular is Danny uh, shifting from a look of horror almost to a full-on smile, like in a single shot. Um, and that's, that's symbolic, uh, I think, of the sort of tragedy going on in this movie. She effectively kills Christian at the end of the movie, right? Danny no longer needs Christian. She now has her communal empathy fix, right? She's now part of the Harga family. There's no need for Christian. And, and so I think the currency that's exchanged in this movie, the catalyst that pushes everything forward and undergirds a lot of the horror is uh, the idea of empathy, right? Like a kind of fellowship and identification that provides comfort to Danny during a horrific time in her life. And this is coded all throughout the movie, right? From scenes where the Harga people weep in unison, you know, for like the swan diving old folks uh, that kill themselves. The Harga people sing in tune all throughout the movie from, um, you know, daily activities, just dancing around in the background. It's it's constant. Um, and this, you know, communal empathic connection gets taken to ridiculous and disturbing levels at times. Think of the sex scene, right? The infamous sex scene with Christian and one of the Harga girls, right? There's all these old women watching it and, um, you know, moaning along with her and gyrating their hips all in unison. And I think at one point, you know, I think the mom of the girl even gets in Christian's face as he's penetrating her daughter and they're all moaning together, singing the same song at the same pace, right? So, so empathy is all over this movie. Um, it's that sense of the communal, uh, being a part of a group that hears me, that feels me, that weeps with me, that has sex with me, right? And that's what I think Danny will ultimately succumb to because that's what Danny needs, right? They're going to give her what Christian doesn't. Christian can't keep the candle burning for Danny. Wink, wink. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, this concept of codependency is, is a, a very real world monster. It's not a doll that comes to life. It's not a ghost with a grudge. It's not a zombie that comes after your flesh. Like this is inside stuff. This is self horror, right? It's relational horror. This is a deep kind of horror that is meant to disturb you rather than to make you jump in your seat. And I really like that about Midsummer. It's a high-minded horror film in much the same way Hereditary was. Um, and aside from that, this movie is gorgeous, right? Like the colors in this film, the blown out lighting, all of the little effects with the drugs that we see, like when they're eating at the dinner table. I think this, this is a movie that utilizes distortion very well. And I think that ultimately plays into the themes of the movie, right? Like things not being as they seem, having a skewed perspective, if you will. Um, the Harga people themselves are, are somewhat representative of this in a way. There's this external veneer of being friendly and gracious, but under the surface, there's a duplicity, right? Their customs start to unravel. And as the movie goes on, the Harga people slowly begin to show themselves for what they are. And this is how codependent relationships work. Everything starts out fine. Skull, right? White dresses, dances around the maypole. Everything is sunshine. 
But eventually cracks begin to show, you know, sort of what's bubbling beneath the surface, namely a propensity for a kind of unhealthy reliance on your partner for approval or a sense of identity. And so I think there's just metaphor all over this movie and it's done masterfully in my opinion. And there's a lot more I wanna say about the movie. Um, you know, there's there's things I didn't like, I'll get into. I, I wanna talk about the acting, the score, but um, I'll, I'll leave it up to uh, my co-host to jump in and discuss some of these things. I don't wanna come off like a little May Queen over here, hogging all the glory. Uh, so what did you got, like, I'll just, throw it out there. What did you guys think of Midsummer? Feel free to jump in. Like those two old people at the beginning of the movie, just, just jump right in, pop in and tell me what you guys thought of Midsummer. Oh, um, <laughs> that's my old person dying. Um, yeah. So I really intrigued by your idea of empathy uh, because when you, uh, all of the things you're identifying as empathy, I identified as community. I identified as a sense of belonging to a group. And then what that group does to a person. So for me, the theme walking away from this movie was that hell is other people, but so also is heaven that we dis that we desire to have a group of people around us that we desire to have support of a larger social structure and that that larger social structure could be in the form of christian but i don't think that danny ever expects christian to be all of the people that she needs it's only when she enters this this commune that and she she spends two-thirds of the movie resisting it like she spends two-thirds of the movie thinking that these people are just as crazy as you and i think they are well although we'll get into how uh we'll get into the the ideas of their community later how dare you dishonor my family i just <laughs> want to say that well ahead. i mean i think that we'll we'll have to talk about in order to talk about this movie we're gonna have to talk about the the ethics of this community and whether or not those ethics stand any sort of uh, 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 you know ideological examination. Um, I think we are going to have to figure out whether or not uh, the uh, the ideolo the ideology expressed by this community is one that is ethically justified. But uh, as sort of an overall thing, I I agree with everything you said except I would, you know, find replace the word empathy with the word community. Um, I think that this is more about how we, the larger metaphor of this film is more about how we place ourselves in a larger society rather than how we place ourselves in, in forms of individual empathy. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm drawing a very uh, sort of thin distinction between empathy. Yeah, and there, empathy. there's there's going to be overlap, but I think ultimately I, I disagree that that's the major theme. I think it's at an individual level and maybe we can argue why we have different, different perspectives on this scene by scene. So one okay. of the reasons would be there, you know, uh, Pele, the guy that brings them all in. You'll you'll see this all over the movie. There's a sense yeah. of yeah. There's a sense of um, uh, I understand what you're going through. I understand what you're going through. A well, one on one, I get it. My parents died in a fire. Your parents died. I understand what you're going through. Um, there's an individual level that sort of overlaps with the communal. Um, but I I think 
I don't know. I think at the end of the day, the manipulative part um, that's going on in this movie is at an individual level. And the it's, it's the, what's being taken advantage of throughout this movie with Danny is um, I think on the, on the level of empathy. I don't think that community is as robust and explanatory mechanism for what should be taken away by the end of it. But I, they're very similar too. So I'm curious what everyone else, I'm curious what everyone else thinks because there, there's going to be some overlap there. So what do you guys think? Is this, is it empathy community? Is it both? Is one more prevalent the other? What do you, what do you guys think? Quite frankly, I I agree with Noah that it's not going to be so much, I think, on, on a community level, or at least not the, the larger metaphor for me was something entirely different than that. But I also don't see this as being uh, entirely manipulative either. Um, even if we were to take like that empathy standpoint, like I think empathy is definitely a key here. Um, and then it, it is truly used to be able to show Danny um, how to move past her trauma. Um, because for me, the larger metaphor of the movie is about endings and about new beginnings. I think that's really kind of like the larger framework that we can understand the rest of this movie in, at least at least in my view. Um, but I don't see that as being entirely manipulative. Now, yes, of course, we go into this this community and we see very strange things happening that we don't fully understand that maybe we can't fully appreciate. Um, and I think we see ourselves reflected in Danny's character again for, for like you've said, Jim, through most of the movie. But in fact, I see evidence of that almost pretty much all the way up to the entire end. She always seems to resist. She always seems to be confused. She's not a hundred percent sure if she wants to be doing what's going on. And I think we infer her, absorption of that culture and her acceptance of that culture because of what she ultimately decides to do at the very end. But I don't think we should necessarily make that that inference or that implication. I really don't see it um, quite so clear. Now, of course, other people might have different viewpoints on this. But yes, for me, of course, it is a very like singular, very individualistic interpretation here where it's it's about this one person's endings, about her new beginnings, and about how this way of thinking about death in particular allows her to do that. Um, okay, so when I watched this movie the first time, I watched it twice. Um, all I could think of was No Rain. I don't know if you guys remember that music video where the little bumblebee girl is dancing and everybody's pointing and laughing at her and she's all alone and nobody's like her. And then she goes through this gate and uh, is a little bit weirded out by it, but then gets excited because she found her people and ends up dancing with them. Although this is way darker <laughs> than No Rain. But what's interesting is if you listen to the lyrics of No Rain, it is definitely talking about how boring and mundane and lonely life can be. And this is a person who had a very dark side and ended in a very dark way. Uh, so it it kind of fits for me. It, I feel like this was No Rain done with a lot of uh, really cool uh, paintings and traditions added in and uh, studying of runes and certain religious viewpoints and and stuff like that so it, it's definitely more than that but i felt like i was watching no rain and weirdly enough i laughed a lot during this movie i found myself laughing almost every time the fool talked right and uh which was played by will poulter uh i just found myself cracking up and i kept thinking about conversations we've had together about how um horror and comedy work very much in tandem and how this is a, a film that really plays off of that. Like it's kind of funny uh, to see some of this 
ridiculous stuff happening. You know, like when Will Poulter's like, I think that guy's still mad at me about the tree. It's like, <laughs> he totally is. You're about to die. <laughs> and it's, I don't know why I found myself laughing a lot at it. But what's interesting, uh, both times I saw it, there was a, a trailer that happened at the beginning of the movies uh, for a film about an Asian girl going to visit her family that is from the East. And they're explaining to her, it's called like Farewell or uh, I can't, I can't remember what it's called. It has Aquafina in it, but they're talking about how people from the East, um, your family are your people. They are you that that's an, a very Eastern viewpoint, uh, that communal and familial and group togetherness is very much, uh, an important aspect of, uh, who we are as people. And whereas in the West, it's very individualistic, you're all on your own. And you can actually see this played out a lot with how she tries to, oh, I don't want to burden my boyfriend. I don't want to burden my boyfriend. And when she was even freaked out about the old people jumping off the cliff, she goes off by herself to, <gasps> to freak out by herself because she doesn't want to burden anybody. She's always worried about burdening people. But in other cultures, that's not how things work. And I almost wonder if this is only uh, maybe disturbing to us because we're from the West, um, that maybe that's part of how our programming is, that we have to deal with all of our troubles on our own, that we shouldn't be burdening our friends with this or our family with this. I have to deal with this and handle my business. Um, and that's not how this particular culture works. They, they will experience all emotions with you. Um, maybe, maybe the East isn't that intense with like the having sex together and stuff, but you know what I mean? Like this idea that if someone is hurting, then we hurt too. And we want to be there for you. So, um, oh yeah, the the farewell. That's it. That's so that's interesting. So like, I, I don't want to say that's the manipulative part. It is in this movie. Um, but you know, it's, I, I felt like that was the thing that was hijacked that, that that's what that's what this community did to flip that switch in her brain to get her on board was see that in her, that she, that she, that she was lacking that thing that this community could provide, you know? And when, um, you know, Ari Aster talks about this movie as being a breakup movie and very personal to him, a very personal movie. He said it was one of the most personal movies, uh, scripts he's ever written. That says to me, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into the debate between what an artist makes and how we view it, because those can be different things. But I kind of went into it thinking that it was an individualistic movie just from that alone, that this is, it's a breakup movie. It's a one-to-one. It's about losing something in a partner and gaining it in a very negative, unhealthy way somewhere else. Um, So I think that was a big part of it for me too. But that's, you're right. That definitely, this, there, there's, we're opening with a very like individual versus communal, um, sort of approach, which I think is the right way to start this. Um, yeah. So I, what, what else do you guys think? Uh, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like Danny's transformation, um, uh, in the course of the movie is more a matter of, uh, it's more quantitative than qualitative. Um, the, the primary codependent mechanism that we've been talking about so far is between Danny and Christian. I don't think that's entirely true. Um, I think there, uh, we see a couple of times in the course of the movie, early in the movie, um, where Danny chooses the majority over Christian. Um, like the, the, the question of whether or not to take the mushrooms, she doesn't feel up for it, but there's social pressure being applied and Christian actually sides with her. Um, but in order to, 
appease the majority, she persuades Christian to go along with the majority, along with her. Um, I, I think she um, responds to the social expectation of the group. Um, and in most settings for most of her life, that group is Christian. Uh, we don't see her maintaining any relationship other than with Christian um, uh, in her life up to this point. Um, uh, we have the family largely as an abstract and that uh, largely as a burden. Um, so I, I feel like she was uh, even more than a, a transformative mechanism of uh, detaching from the individual and attaching to the collective. She's already on board with that. She's already there. She is already doing that and uh, can do that with a pretty rapid facility and then express the collective's will in such a way as to pull Christian into the fold. Um, uh, empathy is, uh, empathy is a tricky word for me these days, uh, hot off of reading an article regarding new insight in the neurophysiological mechanisms of empathy. And that, um, and I'll absolutely get you uh, get you the link to this. That uh, the physiological mechanisms, the neurological mechanisms that we have uh, classically associated with empathy, um, uh, mirror neurons, and uh, some uh, some uh, activity in the prefrontal cortex that we classically associated with identifying with that which is not me, um, that it actually functions in almost a hyper tribalistic way. Um, that when these mechanisms are engaged, it can uh, uh, subjectively translate into an experience of hyper-identification with those with whom I already identify. Um, that I literally feel the pain of, I have a physical sensation of pain of someone who probably looks a lot like me. Um, but that by virtue of overstimulation of other aspects of the brain that are have, uh, trying to deal with this feedback, that results in a, sh uh, a shutdown in ability to abstract or apply theory of mind or uh, a general intellectually held uh, transubjective rubrics. So that while this results in hyper identification with like, I can feel the razor burn of someone that I visually recognize as similar to me, a dramatically reduced ability to perceive the internal experience of someone who I don't perceive as very much like myself. Um, so in, in for that working, that take on empathy, this is absolutely about empathy. Um, uh, this is a, this is a, uh, a horrifying portrait of the actual mechanisms of empathy, um, and the means by which they can be, uh, uh, subverted, uh, the means by which, um, uh, identity structure and the range of me, the, the boundaries, you know, by which I define me can be externally redrawn and externally redefined. Um, uh, this movie contained some, there are scenes in this movie, and we'll, we'll get into that later, um, that were for me, this, I think at this point, three of the most violent images I've ever seen on film are from this movie. And they don't involve a drop of blood being spilled. What are those images, if I can put you on the spot? Because... 
Yeah, what well, let's let's start there and then I'll move on. Um the sex uh the uh not orgy in the hut, the um uh the sex scene in the hut is a profoundly violent image. Um uh and the moment that it became uh the moment that it became violent and not just a violation of boundaries was the moment when the girl who was uh, uh, who was uh, being mated with Christian um, was no longer able to pleasantly engage with the experience, was no longer able to endure the experience. She is visibly in pain. She is visibly in discomfort. She is looking to the row of women that are, that one would think are there for her, for her support. They're not. They are not there for her. Exactly. Um, yes. And, that's, and that is almost a rape scene. Yes. Yes. It is absolutely. It is absolutely a rape scene. And the the moment that it is unequivocally, unambiguously at is the moment when one of the women reaches in, curls it. No. Uh, it, it escalates into that shade. Yeah. But but the, but the turning point for me was the finger under Christian's chin to redirect his gaze from this woman who is obviously in pain to a woman who is miming ecstasy for his benefit. And then it escalates all the way up into, as, as Shayro was alluding to, one of the elder women grabbing Christian's buttocks and pushing him, uh, pushing him on. Um, which I would say is the, is the point where we make it unambiguous that he is also being violated. Um, so uh, that was uh, that was one. Uh, the other, and I think I, I think hands down, just for it, in my to my experience, um, uh, the one of the most violent images that I've ever seen on film was when Danny was uh, having seen all of this. Uh, runs away from the barn and starts screaming on the floor of the barracks, uh, the the bunkhouse. And we have uh, her 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 friend, her confidant, her guide through this community experience. Uh, at first, mimicking, 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 and then as Danny is escalating her reactions. Uh, those the the mimicry escalates until all of these girls are gathered around her, um, uh, screaming in time, which in in a from a superficial uh, superficial point of observation it, it seems like an act of empathy. We are sharing your pain, but that's not what's happening. At least to me, as as a I, and I spent I spent most of this movie in a you know, somewhere between three and seven on a panic attack scale <laughs> watching, uh, watching this. Um, uh, I was, I was sweating. I did not feel good <laughs> watching this movie. I can't uh, honestly have, have hard time thinking of the last time that a movie did this to me. Um, what's happening there. They are not empathizing, uh, at least not in the way that we generally discuss empathy. They by mimicking uh, through this mimicry and this echoing, they are taking Danny's pain, Danny's suffering, 
and depriving the ownership of it from uh, depriving her the ownership of it. It is no longer, it no longer belongs to Danny. Um, uh, Danny's pain. And uh, we, when we talk about philosophy of mind, we talk about theory of identity. Um, uh, it's, it's almost, it's so well-worn. It's almost uh, a philosophy knock-knock joke. You know, uh, like we talk about knowledge, we talk about pain is most, uh, one of the most fundamental examples. Like the, you know, like you can't feel that pain. You can't know that pain. Um, well, in this, in this case, um, they have taken Danny's knowledge of pain um, and negated it entirely by making it so, uh, something that is owned collectively. At the same time, they have also taken her expression of pain, this very particular anguish, and through the mimicry and the chorus, it's no longer a sensible sound. This is no longer the sound of a woman in, in, in anguish. This is now noise. They have turned a particular expression of un unendurable and unendurably particular experience, and they have rendered it into meaningless noise by virtue of their echoing and by virtue of their uh, uh, by virtue of their mimicking of the behavior when they themselves are not recipients of like experience. Okay, so that's where I'm going to quibble with you. I like first of all, I you know, of course I respect your your personal experience with the film and the fact that this film, you know, uh made you uncomfortable. Like I'm not going to try to um negate that or quibble with that on and on and on. But I think that that scene that you're talking about is the scene that cued me into the idea that this film was more about community than it is empathy. Uh, the the sort of discussion I was having with Noah at the at the outset of the podcast, because I think that that scene, while it is disturbing on the face, I. I think that the idea of rendering one's pain into nonsense is one of the good things that friends can do when you're in pain. Um, like how else do you expect, like if I came to you and I said, Ben, I have this terrible story and I'm in pain as a result of this terrible story, what do I expect you to do? Do I expect you to minimize it? Do I expect you to feel my pain as well or do i how do i how do i want you to respond to that and the idea that they could both do both of those things minimize it and seemingly feel my pain as well seems to me to be the comfort that a community can offer and the fact that all of this is so monstrous on its what, when we sort of take an objective look and walk out of the theater and think about the movie and go, oh shit, this is this is fucked up. Um, I, the, I, that, that thing seems distant from the actual moment of having somebody scream with us. Does that make sense? And so it's it's that scene in particular well, that I like. You had one reaction to it, and then I had a sort of opposite reaction when I was identifying with the character in that moment. 
But it's it's not it it's not a screaming with. It uh, it isn't uh, it isn't a screaming with. It is the particularity of the mimicry that I've that I that to me pushes it in the direction that that I expressed. Um, if if you're screaming and I offer my own scream in in support of yours, that's something. That that is one thing. We're we Jim and Ben are screaming together. It's something else if I'm watching you and I'm imitating and I'm pulling and I'm imitating and I'm breathing at the same time and I it it is a so you in, think in much artificial is I, I think is what you're saying is you think it's all artificial that they're going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't get 10 people that's singing where, in chorus without practice. That's where you and that's I artifice. Different. It's absolutely artifice. We we can see them studying her. We can see them getting a sense for the cadence and the pace. And I, I don't think this was a I, I think this I think this is well, I mean, uh, we see a similar behavior, uh, similar behavior that applies earlier um, uh, when uh, 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 when the 72 year olds are jumping off the cliff that we have um, this uh, this uh, collective scream. But we also have people looking at each other and taking cues from each other um, to make sure that they are performing in chorus, that they are doing this simultaneously and that uh, there is no individual voice in this. So you see like a kind of Kim Jong-un thing going on here where they are being told this is how you behave in this society and if you don't behave, there will be consequences. This is how we are supposed to behave. Well, I, I think absolutely that they, that that the people in this village believe that what they are doing is uh, beneficial. I believe that they, uh, I, I think that they believe that um, what I see as a total erasure of particularity of identity um, and a profound violation of the boundaries that are necessary, I'd like answer, uh, uh, to answer a uh, Jim, a question that you posed rhetorically, if you come to me with pain, the first thing that I do is validate it. Um, the, the first thing that I do is, uh, is say that, yes, you are, you are in pain, and what's more, that the experience you are describing is one where pain is an appropriate reaction. Um, uh, it's totally understandable that you're in pain. In fact, it would, be, it would be unhealthy if you were not in pain. I would be concerned if you did not, ex uh, if you did not experience pain from that experience. Um, so in, in so doing, there is an affirmation of, I am here, you are there, we are people. Um, uh, by virtue of the subject-object relationship by which I am commenting on your pain. Uh, and that's not present here. That's not present in this, uh, in this village. There is no, at no point do we have someone uh, speaking to Danny, um, uh, except uh, Pele, uh, and he's a whole other. Oh, he is, he is a whole other kettle of fish, um, that we'll head <laughs> into. I am sure he really um, is. Yeah, I was gonna actually bring up Pella in in a moment. Like you were talking about the expression of pain as a community. Uh, you you cited the the scene in which Danny is obviously having a reaction to watching her boyfriend fuck somebody else, um, and that's 
that's certainly a scene I think we can have discussions about, about the artificial nature, the question of whether or not there's an artificial nature uh, to the pain that those women are expressing as well. But when um, Christian is dying and the other two uh, fellas are dying in the hut, in the yellow triangle house, um, they have a shot of Pella uh, screaming, and I wondered whether or not he was joining in with the community's pain or whether or not he himself was actually experiencing pain at the loss of his friend. And my understanding is, is that your reading of that shot would be that Pella's just indicating, to use an acting the pain of the fellow, the people around him, rather than actually feeling an individual pain about the death of his so-called friend, uh, Christian, in that 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 hut. I, I would say that Hella is so acclimated to the modalities of his community and the ideals of his community, the internal and external expressions and normalizations that are expected of members of that community, um, that he is incapable of differentiating between the two. See, I think that's that's a really good way to highlight what I, what I found most interesting about your interpretation so far. And I think what I have the most trouble with is that, you know, yes, of, of course, we're talking about some kind of like just like this fictional culture or whatever. And so before I launch into this huge defense of it, like I just want to go ahead and call that out, right? Like we're not talking about a, a real group of people with real values, real mores, real norms. Uh, that being said, I still do think that this lens by which we're interpreting these actions um, and their kind of like shared experiences is incredibly not not even just like Western centric, but American centric. Um, like it, it's really good, I, I think, to to sort of call back to to what Shara said closer to the beginning about, you know, East versus West. And of course, I think that's really interesting here because of the collectivistic versus individualistic differences. And we've seen that throughout research. I mean, we, we were talking about psychology a little bit earlier, but throughout social psychology, there are measurable differences in many studies that talk about kind of like the impacts of Eastern collectivism versus Western uh, individualism and kind of like how how that really does shape people to see things very differently and value very different things. So whenever we're talking about, you know, certain things being artificial or fabricated or just sort of like to be manipulative or, or nefarious in some way, I, I wholly I wholly have to disagree with that. And I, I am glad at least that you did mention that they in particular, they don't see what they're doing as being nefarious and wrong and bad. Like they actually think what they're doing is helping and good. Um, because that I think is probably the dominant thought in my mind compared to what you're saying in the interpretation of this culture as it exists as the setting for the larger story and the larger framework. Um, I really don't think that they, obviously they, they don't, if this were a real group of people, I don't think it is an intended for them to seem like they're trying to just use somebody and manipulate them and steal their pain and invalidate them and beat them down psychologically. I think probably what this is supposed to display is perhaps an older way of thinking, a more collectivistic way of thinking, shared responsibility, shared experiences, um, and all of that sort of thing. Like, yeah. One example I do want to bring up is actually uh, if you go back far enough in history into Japanese culture, you have this idea of like honor suicide. Like, so if you do something that's so bad that it shames your family, you were expected to end your own life to restore that honor. Like maybe if you're like a samurai or something like that, you see this. No. His 
Historically, disproportionately practiced across class lines. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, a peasant is far more likely to be required to perform an honor suicide in uh, to to expunge a wrong committed against their lord than the lord was expected to commit an honor suicide to expunge a crime performed against their shogun. Um, uh, you can uh, and there's. Uh, even uh, even contemporarily, even through the Meiji Restoration, uh, uh, even up to uh, uh, up through uh, World War II, um, uh, there was a very reliable um, uh, dispersion pattern of uh, honor suicides along socioeconomic lines. Uh, the poorer you are, the more likely you are you are to do it. Well, let me see if I can make Ben's point with something that's that's in the film and a point that's made within the film is we we put our old people into nursing homes and they have their old people jump off of off of cliffs now i don't know how many of us have been in nursing homes but they're monstrous places just like I have been in several bad places in my life, but I don't think anything compares to the shit smelling, just parade of misery that is a nursing home at lunchtime. It's, it's just an awful place. And when one of the characters uh, brings up the idea, look, we put our old people in nursing homes and they have their old people jump off of cliffs. I've, I'm sure that nursing homes are monstrous to them. Um, that was a point that as much as this community literally murdered five people, uh, five innocent people who were who they had drawn into that community, as much as this community has a death toll when they talked about nursing homes, I thought they maybe had a point. And I'm not in favor of old people jumping off of cliffs, but I'm definitely not in favor of nursing homes either. Uh, so I, I like I think when when Ben is speaking to, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but uh, I, you know, in sort of in a half-hearted defense of this community, in a half-hearted defense of this commune, which I acknowledge has a death toll. Um, they, they got a little bit, they, they understand a thing that from a Western point of view, they, they understand a thing in Western culture that is absolutely monstrous. And that is just and, the existence of nursing homes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, and that's definitely, yeah, we didn't hear that. We didn't hear that from a member of the community. We did not hear that from a member That's of the true. community. We it heard was. that from an outsider presenting an outsider's apologia for the internal behavior of the community. But that doesn't mean that that, uh, that, that defense is any less valid. It, so, it absolutely means it absolutely means that it's less valid. That's that is what? someone from the outside. It does. Because uh, because that uh, because that defense was presented by someone from the outside world trying to rationalize what they had just seen. We have no idea if the people in the community have developed this as uh, this uh, way of 
this way of being as a response to a thing of which we don't know whether or not they're even aware of. Sure, whoa, whoa, whoa. we don't they know. It's not as a response. No, definitely not. Not as a response. No, no, no. I think what what the idea is, and it's not even supposed to be a defense of the culture. It's not a defense of the culture. What it's meant to be used as is a way to describe the fact that they are raised up and developing these mores and these sort of like traditions. Again, traditions in a culture that is much more collectivistic than united states culture and so to view what they're doing through a cultural lens that we would be used to would be a mistake because i don't think that's it's that's not how it's supposed to be interpreted they're not doing it as a response it's not some kind of um a nefarious thing in their eyes like i mean it's literally i think intended to be a totally different culture with a totally different set of values and in mores and they believe what they're doing is functional and good and that's just how it's supposed to be interpreted like i don't think that's yeah, you like would, a, you would be, a, you would be, the United be, States framework is just kind of, I, I think it, it introduces a pollutant in the, into the interpretation of the art that shouldn't be there. Uh, can I, uh, slightly defend everybody here? Um, so fun fact, Ari was asked about this particular part of the film and he said it was his twisted dark sense of humor that decided to add in that it's their own faulty thinking that traps them in this environment in the first place. Um, so a lot of times it's not even an attack on, you know, liberal viewpoints, but in a way it kind of is this idea that we have to assimilate ourselves to other cultures or, you know, try to blend in or try to accept everything that's different. Um, it uses that faulty thinking to show how that could lead to bad things happening to you. It's his own dark sense of humor that added that to the film. Um, but I love that people were like, yeah, I buy it. And, and this is actually a sign of a good film, right? So a really good film will have a villain or an antagonist that you are like, yeah, I get it. Like everybody was down with Thanos. They were like, yeah, the, there's too many people. We, we probably should eliminate some of the population and everybody was on Thanos' side. That's a sign of really good writing, really good characters. So the fact that this argument is even happening is so awesome. Like that is exactly what it's supposed to be. And I'm not trying to downplay any side of this, but I think it, it's just a sign of good writing and good characters. It's also a right. sign of a really good cult. Like, <laughs> like a, a, a cult has allure. That's why it's a cult. I mean, you know, the, lest we remember, these are people who are inherently manipulative and Pele befriended these people just to bring them in and kill them. So, but he never lied. I mean- His first words of the film- But think did of all he the, though? Think of all the Swedish women you can impregnate. Like that's his first words of the and movie. And where was he lying? wasn't lying one of you guys is gonna impregnate someone we don't but know if you omit the fact that you're going to do the blood eagle torture on one of them that's probably pertinent information that you need to add to this Look, this should be on the brochure it should be on the brochure <laughs> no um, doubt there's one line one like, line here to point out any, like, anything uh any, they are totally aware okay uh even if we as outsiders are are expected to practice good cultural universalism um and uh in in uh as say that we cannot judge a system of uh, external to it uh in any way shape or form and you'll notice that when i was listing most horrifying images the suicide on the cliff ain't on the list it's not on the list 
I can contextualize that. Sure, the human sacrifice at the end, we can contextualize that. Um, uh, if, the, uh, if this is a society that believes that it absolutely has, has a covenantial relationship with a specific deity that gives them a, a unique reincarnative covenant, like if you die outside the community, you're just dead, but if you die inside the community, then you get in on our reincarnation covenant, then sure, you know, uh, uh, bringing, people, uh, bringing people in and bringing them alive, you're ultimately giving them a form of immortality that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. But this is a society that is totally aware of the flip side of that cultural relativistic argument. They know that what they are asking, no one's going to sign up for. They know that people external to the system are not going to be on board with it, um, which is why they deceive, which is why they manipulate. And regarding uh, Pele, uh, I don't, the film doesn't spell it out, but it certainly leaves open to interpretation the question of how far he went to set this up. Because this group of friends seems really odd to me. It seems really odd that we would just happen to wind up with a group of anthropology PhD students of varying degrees of actual de demonstrable competence that would conform to the ritual major arcana of this religion, that we have the beast, that we have the fool, um, that seems like really long odds for luck of the draw. I think these people were picked. I think they were groomed. I think this entire series of events, as we saw played out in the film, was very, very carefully constructed behind the scenes. And before I said, and my, was it murder-suicide? Was it actually murder-suicide? Wait, what, if, if I could really in, that, wait before a we translate, before we air transition, I just I want to clarify something very quickly. I don't think anyone in this podcast so far has used cultural relativism to argue in favor of the culture that we're talking about here. Correct. I think pointing that out is important because the reason that it was brought up was just to clarify that there is a lens through which it is more clear to view the interpretation of this culture and the lens through which there is some clouding and some impurity. The reason that this all seems strange to me is because I, I think most, all of you probably have seen the, the horror of this film being look at this scary group of people and what they're doing. Look at this weird cult. And I really think that that all of that, that whole narrative is really just supposed to be the framework within which the main story happens and, and focusing on this so much just seems I don't know. Like it, it seems like maybe, maybe we're looking at something that's sort of like beside the main narrative point a little bit. Like that's that's that was really kind of like my core message there, and trying to bring up. Yes, there are differences. Yes, we can look in this lens or this lens, but ultimately, I think looking through one lens will allow you to see a little bit more of the story than just these people are doing things that are nuts to me. You know what I mean? Um, I just want to I want to ask something and we'll see where this takes us. OK, because uh, Silver Fox Ben brought up uh, intentions and, uh, you know, pushing this uh, that th these people were going to already be put in these situations. Something I noticed upon the second viewing a lot more 
was that the placement of beds where people were sleeping had art above them that depicted the exact thing that would happen to them. Now, was that Ari giving spoilers for us, or was that the tribe of people putting them where they're supposed to go to with these runes that, um, you know, kind of are supposed to push a narrative? Uh, why wouldn't the art push a narrative? Uh, maybe they're trying to pressure people into these positions. Did they already have Danny in mind as the May Queen? Did they already have in mind that Simon was going to be in a, a chicken coop uh, with his lungs out of his body? That's you know? very hereditary. Come to think of it, Cher. I don't mean to I'll, I'll, like just really quickly. The, the same thing in hereditary with the the the, the uh, phrases put everywhere the pagan both have pagan things sprinkled in and out through the background interesting yeah so I was mean, that ari or was that the tribe is no i think that's the tribe like i think that you have to consider everything in a diegetic framework i think you have to consider everything associated with the placement of the beds associated with the the tribe um now I think the uh, the images at the beginning and the images with the uh, particular uh, one of the images is divorced or two of the images are divorced. The, the images at the beginning and the images uh, associated with the woman chopping off her pubic hair and then that being a love story uh, kind of motif. Um, but only Connie and Simon saw that. Uh, the other people walked away from that and only we saw it and Connie and Simon. That's why yeah. they were like, is this a pube? And they had did not see the connection. I think anthropology students would have seen the connection when, you know, it was like, oh, this is a love story. Exactly. <laughs> I think they would have figured I, it out. I think that that's, I think that's Ari Oster. And then what the bed placement is the, uh, the tribe. Um, Let's uh, sort of to frame this discussion, Ben, what's the, uh, Silver Fox, Ben, uh, what is the uh, third, uh, <laughs> you're embarrassed by that, what's the third image that was the most violent? And then maybe that'll help us frame a, even more of this discussion, because I do think that you led us to some of the things we need to talk about this film, and that is uh, especially, and and we, we address this not with as much depth as I want to, um, but uh, you know, a a discussion of the community, uh, a discussion of what the mores of this community are. But maybe your your third example of the most violent act you've seen on film will lead us to another uh, another fruitful topic of discussion. Uh, the the the, uh, the series of events that follow the Maypole. So um, she is, so she wins the maypole dance thing and then she gets ushered off by a group of people. Uh, Pella kisses her in uh, a length of time that is way more than friends, maybe, maybe like a half second longer than friends would and on the lips, which friends wouldn't. And uh, then Christian is left standing there. That's the most violent, the third most violent act you've seen on film. She's, it's, it's that she is hallucinating. She is put through this ritual of physical exhaustion when, by the by, uh, paying attention to, and uh, this is the whole 
technologies that a, a whole other kit and caboodle because this this ser the the series of events that i'm i'm describing is just to me profoundly violent um uh includes the dinner table um uh and what we see on the dinner table what we see on the dinner table oh christ um and it uh, will we'll, we'll, that deserves its own absolutely deserves its own topic um but she is um calorie deprived um throughout since arriving at the village um uh constantly dosed with uh constantly dosed with hallucinogens and when i mean I, I, my take on the maypole is that girls were told to fail okay uh, she was a uh, uh danny who has never done this before did not by virtue of serendipitous or supernatural intervention find herself more physically competent at an activity than uh, a group of women who have been doing this their entire lives. Um, uh, uh, they were they were told to fail so that she would be the May Queen, um, which is uh, profoundly manipulative in its own right. But then immediately after this, um, as she is expressing preference regarding um, what happens now, she is whisked away uh, to perform uh, uh, to perform this uh, series of rituals uh, taken pulled out of uh, a context of comfortability, support, and recognizable faces before, and again, she is still physically exhausted. It's not like they let her take a power nap after this. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, 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 put, through, uh, put through this uh, further experience of uh, demand and uh, ritual obligation before being brought back to um, a position of presumptive authority. She is the person who dictates the, the pace at which the feast happens. And we see her discomfort with this, um, that she is, uh, that she is effectively officiating rituals of which she has no knowledge and nobody has taken any time to give her any, uh, uh give her any kind of guidance. Um, I think, uh, it, uh, and I describe it as violent. Uh, because it is a powerful mechanism of, uh, they put her in a position of extremely profound self-doubt and external affirmation. Uh, any good that she feels in this moment is not internal. It is purely from the group. It is purely collective affirmation that's sustaining her at that point. So this leads me to another question, and you kind of led this, you 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 opened this rabbit rabbit hole when you said, was it really a mur murder suicide? And it seems to suggest that you think all of this was profoundly manipulative from the beginning. And that's something which I don't think is well, okay, I'll let you defend that position before I say that I don't like it. <laughs> Can I say well, one I, thing? Uh, so obviously uh, a discussion of intentions, right? So a really good place to have this discussion is with uh, the elderly people jumping off the cliff. Uh, technically, uh, Pele said at 72, that's the end. He kind of hinted at what's going to happen. Maybe that prepared her a little bit. 
now what happened with Connie and Simon, they see this event and they start screaming and freaking out and they're very upset and they can't believe what they've seen. And there is a discussion that happens between two of the villagers where they are like, why didn't you prepare them? Why are they not warned? Now, is that discussion uh, pretend and acting so that people think that this was something they were supposed to be prepared for? Or were they supposed to actually prepare them for it? And if so, how were they supposed to prepare them for it? What was supposed to occur there? And I think that's where intentionality can actually start to be understood because uh, it's technically... Pele, like, talked to them a little bit. He talked to, uh, what's his name, Josh? I think that's what his name was. Yeah, talked to Josh, him about... So I call him Chidi because he's on uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, The Good Place. Yeah. yeah, and I love The Good Place. But um, he talked to Josh and was like, hey, like, this is the event that's going to happen. And then we see Christian saying, what is this event? And tries to Google it and can't figure it out. And the black guy kind of smiles and's like, hey, hey. I don't know if he knows what's going to happen. I don't know that he knows what I, it is. I, I, asks, I know that he, he does pretending? know. He absolutely knows. No, okay. he, absolutely, yeah, so. he absolutely knows because earlier there's an exchange between him and Pele where um, Pele says, we are on our way to Swedish word. And he says, what? Really? Really? We're actually going to. We're actually going to see We're that. We're going to see it. Yeah. He They're in bed. Exactly. They're in bed having that back and forth. Yep. Okay, well yep. then he knows then exactly I guess he what's did, going to happen. I guess he did warn some of them. He didn't tell Christian though, although he did say to them, yeah, 72 done. Uh were they more prepared? Is that how subtle they're supposed to prepare people? I don't I don't Were know. they 72? Well, I mean, we don't know that, but within the narrative framework of it, I think it's a fair assumption that they are 72. I think you're, I, I, I guess what I would say is I wonder I whether or not, I wonder, I wonder whether or not you are ascribing too much manipulative slash omniscient qualities to this group of people than they necessarily deserve. Um, I, we, I, we, we are either dealing, we are either dealing with omniscience uh, I, I, well, I, I don't think I don't think my explanation I don't think my theory actually requires omniscience. Um, uh, I think that, that uh, setting up Danny's parents' death and that doesn't uh, require omniscience. Yes, yeah, like, that doesn't require omniscience at all. I that that requires that requires uh, a plane that ticket. Requires, Yes, that Wait, requires a plane ticket. Well, yeah, I mean, so so here's what I would say: the movie, the 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 movie does not. The movie does a. It's difficult to argue against it, and I think that the movie does that on purpose. Like there is no explicit answer to this, but the more you think about how the Harga people interact with visitors, you see this very very overt and obvious sense of manipulation mixed with a very mechanical sense of how their emotions should be in various stages of trauma and grief. And this is reflected in Pele at the very beginning when they take the drugs and they're hallucinating and you have that humorous uh, moment with Will Poulter and Pele says, look at the tree. Everything is as it should be. Everything works mechanically. Like there's this, there's this thing in which that's, I think purposefully embedded into the movie 
to sort of show the Harga people for what they are. I, I, I argue that you might be right only in that if we look at how when he was talking to her on the couch about the death of her family and she starts to emotionally react, we see her go, I can't do this. She goes to the bathroom, she closes the door and all of a sudden she's on an airplane. It's almost like what he did manipulated her to actually exactly. be there when the plan was that she wasn't supposed to be there. That's what Christian exactly. said. She's, she's not supposed to be there. She's just fine until he compassionately pushes those buttons. Further, further, the, and further, the person who, uh, you know, when they're all coming and they visit the Harga people, I, I think explicitly, I'll have to go back and look at this, but I think explicitly the one of the elders looks directly at Danny and says, I'm so glad you came. Like it's, there's, they really wanted her there, guys. Like, so you, you, you gotta wonder. I'm, I'm a fan of this. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of this uh, making the frogs gay approach to this. There's something in the water. I, I like this. Before, before Danny's family dies, she is popping Adivan like Tic Tacs. And this is three years into this is three years into a relationship. Danny's own challenges are not invisible. And they are not invisible to Pele. Sure. I I can agree with all of that. Like, I just don't... I just don't agree that this was manipulative from the beginning. Like, that's where I'm I'm quibbling with you. And, and all right, all right. Jim, Jim and Ben, head. Jim and Ben, you guys would be dead the first five minutes. You're the sociologist in the story. I no, love you guys. I would have been out a lot. Like, as soon as two people have their hands on each other's shoulders and we're like giving each other uh, on interrupted eye contact for five minutes i was like okay i'm this is <laughs> i'm out this is not the place for me i mean i think i was done at it's nine o'clock well. like it's nine o'clock and it's blue no that's where i would have been would you have left what what's the what's the point that you no, would I'd be, I'd be toast. i'd be toast no no two ways about it i'd, I'd absolutely be toast um uh, but i i'm just gonna i'm just gonna throw it, the even worse um, a sociologist who has to die to avoid spoiling the movie. Uh, that's who I am, and I know that. Um, I've accepted that. Uh, so, so you would be especially uh, Josh in this movie. You would be William Jackson Hart Cheaty. Uh, oh no, no, I, 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 I wouldn't. I, well, I'll tell you one thing. I definitely wouldn't break into the temple to photograph the book explicitly after being told not to do so. Um, uh, I would find my own unique way to get brutally murdered. Uh, the question but, is, uh, are any men able to win anyway or survive? I, I think there's only one May Queen that's actually a thing. So you guys would all be dead just on account of the fact that you that's guys are- what my wife said. Yeah. That's what my wife said. The first thing yeah. Danielle said is she said, men are getting, I can see why men don't like this movie. That's the first thing she said. And I was like, what? And then I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I get it now. Yeah, I mean, like, there was nothing in the movie, honestly, that explicitly said that all the men had to die. I mean, they ended up picking one woman because she seemed to be the most malleable to what was going on, probably because of the trauma she experienced, which I think is a stretch to say was set up beforehand. But 
you know, I mean, I think the males and the other females that were invited to this commune were selected for various reasons. One of them was because they needed new breeding material so that they could avoid inbreeding. And they explicitly said that. And in fact, there was somebody else, not just one who brought a group of people there. They both ended up being killed as well. But I think that's probably part of the selection process that we see there is that, you know, you have to be able to kind of like fit in and, and sort of fall in line with certain mores and like certain pitfalls that you could potentially fall into one of them ended up being used for genetic material and then eventually killed and the other was selected probably to stay there also as genetic material what? but more what if she would have chose malleable. that what if she would have chose that the villager dies and christian lives though is he permanently paralyzed? Was that a temporary sand blow? Like what? I thought about that too. I was, I was, yeah, I was curious what would follow. Like what that would be. It'd almost be like and the Harga people failed if they did that. I don't know. Are you That's sure? Because like, I they, think... no, they sacrificed a couple of their own guys anyway. Like they had yeah. two guys that were volunteered as tribute, they presumably because they thought it was some kind of a great honor to participate in this this burning ritual. I mean, it's not like they only used outsiders for this stuff. That's they true. Probably but... wanted to bring in some outsiders and use the assholes because they don't like them, right? The difference but... is the outsiders did not choose, and the insiders did, and that's where we have this gray area of weirdness that we're like what are the intentions yeah i don't even think what it's gray I, I think it's inherently vile and manipulative and bad and i think that that feeds into the larger commentary on codependency and how human emotions can be hijacked um so i mean i i could have easily found it. some millennials that would have been down to be <laughs> sacrificed for their village though like just be honest about what you're up to be like hey do you want to die in a wonderful village, we'll feed you really great and put flowers on your head and then you get to die. It'll be great. Yeah, have you guys, you've seen that, uh, what is it? There's like that meme, the, the, uh, the not Generation Z, but the millennial meme that's like, what if your mom would have, it's a boomer saying, what if your mom would have aborted you? And uh, the kid's saying, I wish she would have. And the millennial's like, what the fuck? I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to respond to this. Um, hey, did you guys catch the, um, the fact that there was a man named Christian going to study a pagan culture? That was interesting. Yeah, I, oh, I, in I did want to talk about that a little. So it's obviously intentional, right? I think so. I think everything is intentional with Ari Aster. Yeah. A, a, a Christian man going to a... Yeah, I don't know. Christian. And he's kind of like the main bad guy that they've labeled as, a, as the bad guy. In fact, when they are doing their little prayer spaghetti strings hanging over their face like a uh, ritual... Uh, they basically blame him for all the sins that have occurred and like, okay, you're the sacrifice for all of our sins. Uh, he, Christian is the, the. S Christian sin. is sacrifice. He's sacrificed. The Christian, Christian, the man named Christian is the sacrifice. I don't know. I'm just throwing these out well, there. The, 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 the man, uh, the, the man named Christian who, I mean, uh, let's, from the very first time that we meet him, him in the film we're not we're not intended to like this guy um they do they do a pretty good job of laying him out as somebody who is um uh, uh toxic self-absorbed but not sufficiently confidently self-absorbed to disentangle himself from a uh a codependent and toxic relationship um in which dan is getting most of the brunt of the, uh, uh receiving most of the damage uh by that mechanism um, uh, he betrays Josh by sniping his thesis. You know, like uh, he's a total again. <laughs> he's the beast. We see the, the beast. Oh, sorry. Yep. 
Yes, we do see his dick. We do see his dick. Um, I just he is a dick, as in he is an asshole, as in he is a mean person. Yeah, mean Ari Aster's like, this like, guy's such a dick, let's just show his dick. But they know? showed a lot of dick in this movie. Can I give a shout out to that? I know that this is, is sounds weird to bring up, but a lot of movies are fine with showing tits, but they will not show dick. And and I'm glad that we're we're getting more dick in movies. Like I, I think that we definitely need more dick in movies because it... Uh, it 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 fetishizes it mysterious it it makes mysterious the male organ in a way that the female body is not as mysterious. I think we need we need more dick in movies because it is important. I can't believe I'm fucking saying this because it's important I'll to it. our larger culture that uh, that we don't fetishize this female body the same way we fetishize the the male body we it's it's an imbalance in gender relations and so uh this did bring balance to the force though because he was completely objectified in fact he was 100 used for his uh semen and for the ability to impregnate someone he was 100 objectified now do i think objectification of anybody is good no but to see that as a role reversal is is definitely refreshing. I'm not going to be happy till we get more William Defoe penis. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I, we don't actually. As much we cock don't actually. Horror see movies it. as I can get. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm gonna like stop. Yeah, when this is whenever we bring things. up penis. How do you segue? How do you, the no, segues no, no. were working? Until yeah. I'll, 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 okay. What okay. we did is we brought okay, up Willem Dafoe, uh, and then we we had to have a moment of silence for his dick. <laughs> right, as always. <laughs> let us let us all contemplate for the next five seconds the sanctity of Willem Dafoe's <laughs> cock. Excellent. Um, okay, so back to my total uh, totally psychotic conspiracy theory. Um, which is which is what are the odds that on this particular, in this particular week, on this narratively convenient 90-year anniversary, there are a man and a woman, no more and no less, that are 72 years old in a community of about 100 adults. I feel like you could calculate that. Not great. I... Not great. I don't know. I... I... You know, I we see what maybe ten so, children of various ages in the uh, in the community, right? But I, I be really generous. Fifteen, fifteen so, with an age uh, okay. with an age distribution somewhere between somewhere between three and twelve. That's pretty broad spread for a pretty narrow population slice. So we we're talking about it just based on what we're seeing. Uh, somewhere is somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half kids per per year. Um, and that's not, by the way, reflected in the population, dis uh, the age distribution that we see throughout the rest of the community. I, 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 I think but let's let's let me grant you. Uh, first of all, I disagree with you, which fair enough. Uh, but second of all, if I grant you that narratively, if I say, OK, so these people were not 72. In fact, this was part of a larger, larger manipulative scheme. Um, what does that give you interpretively that 
I don't have if I think that those two people were 72. Like what, what is it about that fact that you are able to, uh, well, that, could, that helps you understand the There can be a both end. There absolutely can be a both end. Maybe the tradition is, uh, uh, the tradition could well be you're 72 and at 72 at the next one of these shindigs, you're going to kill yourself. Um, uh, what, uh, what that suicide gave us is what, um, uh, it's a PhD daddy, Ben, um, uh, was, uh, referring to as, uh, as a selection criteria. It gives us a really, really dramatic event for the newcomers to react to in an either satisfactory way or a dissatisfactory way. Um, I, I'd also, I, I'd also point out regarding the, the, the planningness of all of this. Um, it is really, really convenient that the girl that survives to the end is blonde. It is really, really convenient that the guy who got to reproduce is Caucasian with red-tinged, you know, strawberry hair. I mean, like that these are not these folks are not going to upset the genetic apple cart in terms of uh, what the next generation of babies look like. So speaking like, of odds, actually, like, I want to circle back to the uh, the age distribution really quick. So I look up census data, and it looks like for the age group between 70 and 74 years old, we see about 1.39% for men and 1.76 for women. So roughly between one and two people out of every 100 are about 72 years old. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's it. There's there's PhD daddy bringing some you fucking nerds. I can't believe we're the only we're the only podcast on the internet that did that distribution. There would look up the yeah. God bless us. That's why you should like, share, and subscribe. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I I I think for you, Ben, you are ascribing a great deal of manipulative qualities to this group. And I'm not necessarily, I'm not terribly resistant to that because I think whereas I see uh, manipulative qualities at like a seven, you see manipulative qualities at like an 11 out of 10. And I don't necessarily, I think we're on the same spectrum. I, I think we're sort of quibbling about degree. Uh, and, and at that point we can just kind of shake hands and, and say, well, well here's, this is a manipulative I, group of people. May, well, but maybe maybe there's an interesting conversation to be had in asking the question, um, to what degree is the manipulation at an individual level consciously inter, uh, engaged in? Uh, and to what degree are we looking at social practices, traditions, and beliefs that have over time conformed to uh, a range of utility uh, based uh, based on practice that this that this society has extremely manipulative practices and extremely manipulative beliefs because they work um, and that this is just what their belief system has evolved into over a period of time. I would like to point to the tapestry again where we see a love story. Tell me what that love story is telling you. It is literally saying that you're going to bleed your period blood into a drink and 
cut your pubic hair into a meat pie so that you will zombify a dude till he falls in love with you and falls for it's so obvious that manipulation is part of this this tribe's views Wait. and we could talk about degrees but like that's and she even put a rune of of underneath this person's bed when she knew that there was a relationship between him between him and danny she put a rune so that he would fall under a love spell and they were all like oh yeah, she didn't ask she didn't Wait, ask hey, would you like this rune there. there's no consent that's there. that's ancient Teutonic roofies right there I mean, we could talk degrees, but it's pretty obvious that they don't see things as necessarily that you need to consent. It's, oh, I just need to voodoo you into the hoodoo that I do. How does you know? that make how does that make them different than every literally every other culture on the planet, though? Like what culture doesn't have its weird magic rituals? What's fundamentally different about that and praying for a particular outcome? Let me go ahead and lay that bomb out there. I if don't I pray, so pray, I can't answer this. <laughs> well, if, if I'm gonna pray and say, you know, please make this outcome the thing that happens, it's gonna have impacts on other people, it's gonna have impacts on me. You're literally trying to take a hold of the divine to lead there, to a there, there is, result. There is, there is a fundamental difference. There, uh, there is a fundamental difference, and it, ingestion. It, it's what, is, is that the fundamental difference? Is no, it's it's what it, it's what the neo it's what the neo pagan kids would call the difference between invocation and evocation. Uh, whether you are asking. Uh, whether you are submitting a miracle request to a deity who then has the office, auspice, and authority to determine whether or not that's a good idea and whether or not you are taking matters into your own hands by directly interacting with the natural forces that govern human behavior. Um, well, as the as the secular person, I'm going to say I'm going to group that all together because it's just, you know, supernatural bullshit anyway. But as the romantic... Well, there you go. There you go. Wait, wait. As the romantic, I'm going to say that ingesting a girl's pube isn't going to make me fall in love with her. <laughs> just as a thing. I she mean, got, maybe you just haven't found the right pubic wanted. hair. I don't she got what she wanted. She had him ingest her, her blood. He drank out of that glass. He drank yep. her period blood. He ate her pubic hair. And then he drank this hallucinogenic punch and fucked her and she was like i feel the baby in me haha <laughs> like i'm sorry but she got exactly what she wanted with her little rune and her little ben, ben, magic spell <laughs> I, I think to answer your question ben i think the difference is that um the the <laughs> this is going to sound incredibly obvious the level of directness between the blood roofie we'll call it uh and and hope and uh, there, there's an, a direct action, I, I think, of physically going to a person and making them ingest something, putting something physically right where they sit. Um, there is, uh, you know, I, I think even layers of consent that are still there when people pray for when people. I was a Christian. I prayed for a wife at some point when I was like 18 or 19. I was like, hey, give me a give me a good wife. I don't want a psychopath. I I kind of got something in between, so I'm really happy. Um, but you know, basically. Like there, it's it's a hope, but it's not like give it. You're not basically asking God give it to me, even if she doesn't want it, right? There's something almost intrinsically consensual when you ask for 
a, a mate or a spouse in the way that you're describing, right? And I think that's I, I bullshit. Guess so. I mean, it's like it's not really of about. Course. You're not you're not asking the person that would actually be involved, though. You're asking this this supernatural like. But eventually play. you're. Like, but, think, but eventually you are right. Like I like that's a that will be a part of it at well, some right. point, like, and it's lacking. Like, it's lacking in this movie. Not necessarily. I, I mean, ultimately, yes, Christian was drugged, but. I, I kind of think that he could have eaten that that tainted pie and still said no. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like still kind of like a a request to the divine. You play out this ritual. You put these ingredients together, and like really no, though, I mean, no, to it's like not. Crank that's this, crank that's what it's back. It's a crank this fundamentally back a different turns. If I can go ahead and finish my sentence really quick, is just to say that within every culture, you see some kind of a desire to manipulate outcomes in one's own favor. So I don't think it's inherently like unique or interesting about this particular culture in this movie. That they have their own weird rituals to try and make certain outcomes yeah. happen that they want to happen. No, well, I, I, I agree. That's with not the indictment. Otherwise, we have to ascribe power to laying a fucking stone underneath someone's bed. <laughs> like that's not. But it's not. It, I mean, it's as secular. It, it's not what we think. It's not a question things. of what we think is valid. It's not the the the, the moral uh, the the moral connotations of this action are not to be framed in what you think is possible or what I think is possible. It's to be framed in the question of what the person who did it thinks is possible, how they think consent works, how they think that um, uh, human behavior can or cannot be coerced. And no, uh, and this is, uh, this is where again, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm quibbling from way, way out there in the rarely discussed, um, uh, uh, rarely discussed pagan theology um, nitpicking, um, but there is a world of difference between "Oh Freya, send me a fuck buddy" um, versus "I am going to carve a rune and place it under a bed because the runes are not a prayer. Runes are not a request to the gods to intercede on your behalf. The gods themselves use runes to get shit done. That's how this that's how this mythology works assuming that this is inheriting in some way um from the uh from the post etruscan uh uh, uh post etruscan germanic tradition which the use of the runes in the course of this movie would seem to suggest that that is kind of the the rough uh mythological ballpark that they're drawing from um, and the phrase you yourself, you yourself as much just said that it's really about what the person believes is going to happen is it not I mean, like the actual yes. methodology is one thing, but you yourself said, you know, it's really depending on what this person actually thinks is going to happen, depending on whether or not they think it's a manipulative course of action and whether they're not trying to manipulate somebody. But I think the point yeah, is, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Like and, what she, and, people, and what she's absolutely trying to do is manipulate. Yeah, lots of different cultures have absolutely it. I mean, trying it to doesn't manipulate. make them like more manipulative. I don't oh, think yeah. that's like an inherently interesting or unique thing about what they're doing. Like every culture has their way. Well, to uh, if. Uh, uh, if we uh, if we were looking within the framework of uh, if we are looking at uh, a Teutonic uh, again uh, post Etruscan so runes are actually a thing um, uh, a mythological framework then the use of runes against a human being is really bad shit like uh, uh, you, uh, uh, the Burgundian cycle um, uh, the uh, the Icelandic chronicles I mean, like good people don't do this. This is, um, uh, uh, it is an abrogation of uh, the authority of the gods. It is an uh, insult to the autonomy of the other person. And it is um, invariably, invariably, like uh, uh, Sigismund used uh, uh, used runes uh, purely for divination purposes and, uh, and it blew up in his face. Like this is, 
in in Viking myth, the temptation to use a rune and succumbing to it is when the hero has crossed a line and bad shit's going to happen to them because they did it. So this is maybe in this in this in this community in this in this subset of uh, of of that cultural heritage. Uh, maybe they have a different. Uh, maybe they have a different interpretation. But they absolutely there is absolutely um, a hierarchy of what is permissible to be done to of the community versus what is permissible to be done to outsiders. And the application of the uh, the application of rune magic um, to uh, supersede the will of the individuals it seems to be one of uh, one of the ways in which we can do that to them, but we don't do that to us. All right. Yeah, so, we don't have to believe in it. Wait, wait, wait. I I just want to speak yeah, out as a person ahead. who who like greatly studied rune stuff with my like friends that know about this stuff before this particular show. I do want to back what Ben's saying. The The use of runes is not to be taken lightly. Uh, this has a lot to do with that idea of when you put out like black magic, it's going to come back to you threefold. This is not something you do lightly. Although this culture seems to use runes even just for dreaming about things that they hope for, which I don't know if you guys remember, but the kids were carving runes with their teachers uh, to dream of things that will happen to them. And there are runes everywhere. It's on the maypole. It's on the paintings on the walls. It's on their clothing. It's knitted on their shoes. And the thing is, is I looked up a lot of what these runes meant and they are literally saying what's going to happen. Now, why would they stitch into her shoes the rune that talks about her completing this cycle? if they did not intend for her to complete this cycle in the first place. They gave her her clothing that in it, it says that this is what she's going to do. And you actually see this on the drawing that Pele does of her, uh, where he puts the, the backwards R and the hourglass shape, talking about how this is what she is intended to do from the get-go with the flowers around her hair. He knows exactly where she's heading. He knows exactly what she's going to end up doing. And he knows exactly what he's supposed to do because his runes portray him as the gift giver and his gifts are literally gathering up people to be used as sacrifices in this particular uh event so um and this is why i think he actually is crying i don't necessarily know that he's crying because he fears like oh they're going through their thing his crying is very different than the others where they're like smiling and like ha ha ha, ha. and he's legit crying why his gifts mattered and he got crowned and he escaped this horrible, fiery death that his parents had happened to him, which he talked about with her. I lost my parents, too. He discussed this with Danny when he was trying to connect with her because he wanted to avoid that. He made sure that he found the perfect people to be put in this ritual. He made sure that he did his studying of them and their personality types and who they will like how they will fall into place and he even planted the seeds of doubt in danny as they went along saying oh he forgot your birthday hmm oh here's a here's a picture for your birthday oh he forgot it oh he's planting the seeds of doubt from the get-go so that by the time it gets to the point where she, where he's fucking this girl 
she's not going to have any of it. And she's going to be like, you know what? Mm -mm. I knew this from the get go. Nope, nope, nope. Although she even had a friend on the phone in the beginning. I don't think she was completely alone. She had a friend on the phone in the beginning that was like, hey, maybe this is not your tribe, essentially. Um, yeah, probably wasn't her tribe. I yeah, think she was meant to be a part of this tribe. I don't know. If that's true, if if everything you're saying is true, if everything Ben, Silver Fox Ben is saying is true, then having this movie take place all in the open in the sunlight is kind of a bad joke. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's everything yes. is in the open. Yes. The whole plot, if you can, if, if you can, uh, the, oh my God, there's so much, there's so, there, there is so much. The entire plot is spoiled in the art, uh, uh, in the art that we interact with. Every made plot point is, is identified. Where Danny is going to end up is literally stitched onto her clothes. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the march, the inevitable march towards sacrifice um, is laid out in the the layout of the table where we have the ansas rune um uh, uh, uh most uh, uh, uh the folks literally the translate it as <laughs> they the the folks literally and uh, folks literally translate that rune as a homeland that's not quite the more closer would be the the land for which you bleed. Um, uh, the land for which you bleed. Violent. I don't know if you guys know about Nordic stuff, but they're very, but it's not bad. Like sacrifice isn't bad and blood isn't bad and violence isn't bad. They don't see it as like negative. It's like, hooray, we bleed. <laughs> like it's, um, it, it's uh, powerful and you are, contributing to a greater cause kind of a mentality. So I like, and this is where I kind of take a uh, Jim and Ben's side in some ways. Like, I think that they have good intentions because of how their culture has interpreted what blood and death and sacrifice means, but they have bad intentions in that they are manipulating these people into this forced sacrifice, which they probably would not choose to be a part of. Although they would argue they chose to do it because uh, the runes helped choose the right people for it, I'm sure. But you can think you have good intentions. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, they may think they have good intentions, but what they're doing is absolutely horrific. I Yeah, I, I'm... Mm, mm. I, 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 feel, I feel like we've got two two axes of, of, of criticism there. I mean, uh, like... And I thought uh, Celine and I talked uh, after getting out of the theater. We talked about this movie for a good seven hours. We split uh, 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 two bottles of wine and ate but fruit. We didn't have any mushrooms on hand. Um, otherwise, you know, maybe um, uh, wouldn't be inappropriate. But we did our best with what we had available. Okay, I just um, uh, in in sufficient degree that I at, at this point in time I can't honestly tell you which of the things that are coming out of my mouth were originally my idea or were originally hers. Um, but uh, the the uh, two uh, two axes of criticism. Let's just take it as a given that that these people. Let's say let's say not even that what they that they actually believe what they say they believe. Let's pretend they're right. Okay. Let's pretend right, and that there is uh, an absolute annihilation of the soul on death, 
and that they have a very that their village ex has an exclusive contract with a supernatural entity, a deity that has the authority to, if observes certain practices, um, bypass that and pump the soul into this reincarnative po uh, population maintaining cycle. Um, and and there we have. Okay, uh, at that point, they are uh, everybody that they abduct into the uh, that they abduct, coerce, or manipulate into coming uh, into the village. Uh, they're actually doing them a favor, right? Like uh, if if you didn't get uh, burned to death, uh, uh, stuffed inside a bear rug, um, then uh, when you uh, when you died, you would just be dead, and that would be it. But now you're going to get reborn as one of our kids who will later get to. Uh, reach a certain age and then seduce an outsider and bring them to be burned alive. Um, uh, we're we're giving you a slice of immortality. Okay, okay. So uh, at that point, uh, the horror of the sacrifice is contextually absolved. Um, uh, the horror of the uh, uh, the horror of the uh, you're dead at seventy two clip splat um, uh, is absolved. Um, uh, the question of the extreme. <laughs> methods of death that are occasionally practiced by this village. We'll just say that the fine print on that contract with this God was really specific and maybe they should have read it before they signed it, but okay. There are still two big problems. And there is first their coercive engagement with people from the inside that we talked about a lot um, because they know People aren't on board with this. They know people are, if if they put this all in the pamphlet, no one's going to show up for the tour. Um, so there is an awareness of maybe this as not wrong, but certainly this as potentially interpreted in moral frameworks other than their own. So there's some duplicity baked right in there. But what Shayra was just talking about, Shayra's getting into one of my favorite parts about this movie and about Pele and about his relentless manipulative presence throughout um, and that his sacrifices were ultimately successful while his brothers ultimately were not. Uh, he did not, his brother did not bring um, suitable breeding stock in, whether that was because uh, this uh, this village has an unspoken or overtly spoken and Pele's brother just ignored, um, uh, racial selection criteria, or whether because they failed, you freak, uh, they freaked out when people jumped off the cliff and tried to actually leave test. Either way, his brother's, his brother's uh, offerings uh, were not acceptable for the Which breeding Which is very part. biblical in a lot of ways. We think of uh, Cain and Abel, right? Who has the right sacrifices or the right... Uh, gift to be burned uh, well, for and, God. And, and, right? and the brother who had the wrong sacrifices volunteered. I, I, volunteered. <laughs> Probably Volunteered. Yeah. And I People think who are only tried. listening, we have air quotes all over that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's, so the very interesting part about all that is, so... It might be racially a thing, but it also might be that Pele was the most manipulative of these people. And we see this in uh, the manipulation about the thesis, right? Um, the thesis argument is not something these friends ever would have had. The thesis argument came up 
because he saw a weakness in them and a competitiveness between them. And he knew what they were both trying to seek out. And this is what led mm -hmm. Josh to go and take pictures of the book in the first place. He never would have gone down that path had he not feel felt competitive with Christian. Christian would have never gone down that path if he wouldn't have felt like this, this, you know, oh yeah, I already talked to Pele and, and he said I could that was Pele like manipulating these people from the get-go. And there's there's signs that he was really good at getting people in the positions that they needed to be in throughout. Um and it in a way that's like i feel like he's gonna end up with danny too like i think he was also had a crush on danny oh totally and oh, i think he yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. be with her and i think he's going to end up having her i think she's going to become a part of this society and they're going to become lovers and they're probably going to have children that that are put into this uh culture and yeah so it sounds like it, it sounds it sounds like we all agree let me just tie it bring together some some of our threads here. It sounds like we all agree that the Hargit people are very manipulative. I think we disagree, A, on how, like the level of manipulation, the profundity involved in what follows from that, if they're very, if they're beginning manipulative versus once they're there manipulative. Um, so I think maybe there's some disagreements there, but we all agree they're manipulative people and that it plays a very, very, important part in this movie especially with all of us agree with respect to danny um which i think is key danny is what this movie is about the last scene is danny smiling and i i that you know ben brought up three scenes in this movie into which there was no violence and they were still some of the most horrifying thing that was the last scene for me um and consequently uh, Ari Aster apparently had a hard time with that last scene, uh, specifically the music, because he wanted it to convey sort of conflicting emotions, almost like a catharsis, a positive catharsis during this extremely horrific event. And I th I think he nailed it. I, I think that ending just, I, I, that's what sticks with me when I when I think of Midsummer, I, I, all of the other stuff, the, it, it's amazing. You know what, the, the scene that really we haven't talked about almost at all, I think I'm the only one who brought it up really quickly, was one of the most horrific forms of torture ever devised, and that's the Blood Eagle. That's not even where we're at in this movie. We're talking about other shit. That's how good this movie was, right? Um, I think when this movie was pitched to Ari Aster too, it was a very Eli Roth sort of pitch, like foreigners, go to this land in a very hostile-like way, and they get butchered. And from my understanding, he hijacked this idea to make it more personal, more cerebral, more high-minded, and remove a lot of the violence for some of the stuff we've been talking about, which I think is, um, in many ways, more horrific. Like, this is a movie with the blood eagle torture, like the worst form of torture ever, Re really. Um, and yet here why we are do talking you think, about people. Why do you think Simon got the worst torture? Yeah, I, I, that's really interesting. I don't know. I, I mean, that was, I don't know. Do you think it's because of his skin color or do you think it is because he tried to run away first and was the most vehement against their culture? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that's think... a valid, uh, I think that's a valid explanation for it. Um, yeah, that he was the the one who was saying this is fucked the most. Although, of course, uh, Connie was <laughs> equal to him, if not right behind him, in saying this is fucked. 
Um, I yeah, I mean, I think. But she both, might have been a possible May Queen. I don't know. We don't. Yeah, have I don't think decided? she was ever a possible May Queen. You don't think she was? I don't see, this is where the discussion. I don't think she was. Okay. I don't think she was. We don't see. We don't see a lot of. We don't see a lot of black hair in this village. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, so no, I'm gonna go back to. I mean, you were trying to sum up, and um, because I'm an asshole, I'm going to complicate it. Uh, like, I am. Yes, I think that this village is manipulative. I think that they weren't entirely um, straightforward with the supposed victims of their village. A about what they were, what they had in store for them. But I also, I, I want to go back to Pella's first fucking line of the entire movie. The first words that come out of his mouth are, think of all the Swedish women you will impregnate. Like he is deliberately, honestly telling them, telling Christian what he is going to do once he gets to Sweden. And for manipulation, I think there has to be some degree of deception. And I, yes, isn't I there lying by there, omission though? Isn't that a there, form of manipulation? There is, there is, but I don't think, think of all, all the are. Swedish women you're going to impregnate, and then we're going to stuff you into a bearskin and burn you alive. Oh, like that's, um, it's a pertinent detail. It's a, per, it's a good like. You gotta have that on your Tinder profile if that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> there might be people that are down, honestly. No, to yourself. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that I I agree that these groups, that this group of people is manipulative. I just don't think that they are as deceptive as a lot of us have sort of uh, claimed that they are, particularly Ben. Um, and if, and just for the viewers, if you liked Ben's interpretation, go watch our Pontypool analysis. We got some wacky interpretations with Honey the Cat up in that bitch. So, right. There we yeah. go. Subscribe. Oh, yeah. Like, share. Oh, yeah. We, we went. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, and if you like to be really, really depressed, watch the Triangle episode. Um, well, I love that episode, and I love uh, I love Triangle, but we'll get to that. Uh, this is That's for another time. I think that basically what I'm saying is that I think that this village um, believes itself to be pure, believes itself to be right, and believes itself to be inviting outsiders and new blood into its group for ethically justifiable within its own context ethically justifiable reasons and so it seems to me that the word manipulation connotes a different idea than uh one who believes his intentions to be true and so that's that's where I'm differing with you slightly. I I can see. But what if it's part of the screen, system? So yeah, like, oh, Jim. But like, what if it's part of that inherent system? The manipulation is part of those ethics. It's a part of the mechanics yes. to manipulate. That that deceiving an outsider is a holy act. That um, 
but but even uh, even if we uh, even if there is a, a a doctrinal acceptance of that behavior of of the things that we describe as manipulation and and again I, I think I, uh, illustrated one possible way that that could be theologically justified because uh, if we manipulate these outsiders into our reincarnative cycle at least they get reincarnation right so that's that's not all bad but even even if there's you know there's the gospel is written and there's the gospel is practiced. And I think we definitely are given some indications in that in this village there is a gap between the two, um, like Pele and his brother. Um, uh, that uh, this is uh, uh, theoretically well, uh, like I I can't help but think of this in. I'm thinking of this in magician terms, right? Like there's um, a, a card a, a card trick, the opening pull of a card trick. Um, you can either do that card trick in such a way that you are guaranteeing uh, that the mark is going to pull the card that you want, you know, a forced choice structured trick um, uh, versus a free choice structured trick. Um, this feels like, uh, it feels like there are a lot of forced choices built into this particular trick. Sure. Um, I, I guess what I'm, uh, well, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't interrupt. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just... I tie it up really quickly. So uh, theoretically, uh, theoretically, the person, uh, the people who wind up in the hut, that's a free choice, right? You're volunteering for the good of the village. And yet the brother who didn't, uh, the brother who failed is the one who's volunteering. The one who didn't is the one who's going to be banging the May Queen after the credits roll, right? Like that's that seems to be what we're set up to see. Um, we also have the entire question, and we haven't even touched this, the entire question of this village's holy book, which is yeah. written by, which, yeah. which is a, a mash, mash paint on from the, the, in, uh, the uh, uh, inbred mystic um, uh, uh, that they have alive at, uh, at the given time. And then the who, the leaders, the who, exactly. We don't, we don't get a lot of insight into this selection process. Interpret, um, uh, three colors that were put on a page apparently by someone rubbing their face on it um, uh, based on the patterns that we see, you know, like interpret that into 20 pages of really, really detailed text. And it, it feels like maybe, maybe that exegetical process could use a little bit of transparency it's like basing a religion on a Jackson Pollock painting. I get it. Like you're, you're fair in your criticism. I, I guess what I'm. It, what it I'm would be to... if, if we were in the habit of if if carrying your metaphor forward, we had abducted someone as a child and fed them nothing but mescaline for thirty years to turn them into Jackson Pollock, and then interpreting that as scripture. Uh, yeah, I, I I take your point. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that a lot of this movie is a send up of and a satire, maybe satire is a little too strong of a word, but uh, certainly a criticism of liberal cultural relativism, that the idea that these people are... Um, that their culture should be accepted on face value is something that the Chidi character argues. It's something that Christian sort of hijacks as his argument. And I think both of those, those arguments are proven to be false. But in our analysis, when we ascribe to the culture too much 
manipulative qualities, we are taking away from the satire of liberal cultural relativism. And I think very, uh, you know, I'll tell a quick, very quick personal story of uh, a sociologist friend of mine who was talking about cultural relativism and you know, trying to understand other people's culture. And then he brought up the idea of female circumcision and saying, well, look, it's just their culture. And then his his point was, no, it's not just their culture. We should reject that type of behavior even as we try to understand other people's cultures. And I think that if we ascribe too much manipulative qualities to this group, we end up demonizing them and taking away from what I think Ariaster's point is a criticism of our own kind of sense of cultural relativism, our own kind of sense of, of thinking that just because another culture is different and that it's their culture, that it is that it is devoid or or immune from immune from criticism and uh in, in this sense he's try in in this film he's trying to hone down and and nail down the idea that yes we can criticize those cultures um even if uh even if they are different from our own does, can I ask does a question really quick about that does does he say that in an interview or did, was that actually a point that he made no, I'm looking at the art and interpreting. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the film. Ari, Ari Aster no, actually totally did fine. discuss so, that he tried to use as a joke that the people are stuck there because they're being accepting, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So you have the one character who I think is like the the apologist the entire time. There's a set of characters who are somewhat disturbed, and then there are characters who are outright re outright rejecting what they're seeing. What I, I think I have trouble with there also is that I find it difficult to say that this is a criticism of liberal cultural relativism because the people who were most critical still got killed and they probably got tortured worse than anyone else in the film. They were critical of this culture, though. And they yeah, were right, accepting exactly. that so they I, were I, different. Right. So I don't think that there's a real, really a, like a deeper satire here about cultural relativism because you have a spectrum of characters. There is a which spectrum. Brutalized. Yeah, uh, I, I, they, yeah. They did. They did get yeah, murdered yeah, and I'm, probably worse from escaping. And that's exactly where it, this entire film gets interesting. Right. So um, Ari likes to fuck with people. We know he's a bit of a troll with his movies. We know that he tries to get in our heads and really fuck with us. I, I had a similar reaction to it where I decided to talk for hours and hours and hours with family and friends after we watched it. We sat around talking about this movie for hours. Like, what the hell? Uh, and, and there were many different viewpoints on it, too, um, including um, a friend of mine who recently went through a breakup and she saw it as fantastic. And she was like, yeah, this is how you get rid of toxic people. Uh, you have to find your your tribe and your family who help you get out of bad situations. Where oh, you I thought she meant them. burning burning them up. Go, go, no, go. no, not burning yeah. them up. No, and, awesome. and obviously that was seen as more of a metaphor. Uh, sometimes these people that are in your life that obviously don't love you, don't want to be with you, are are only staying with you because what if I later feel like I might want to be with them and then I feel regret, so I'm going to stay with them. Uh, that kind of mentality maybe i just need to get away from them 
and like be with friends and family and not be with this person anymore. And she finally got rid of that relationship. So that was a that, different. That feels more like Joy Luck Club to me. That that feels a little more Joy Luck Club than um what we got here. <laughs> I mean, essentially, what happens to her is she is constantly told by everybody in her life, "This is a person that does not want to be with her," and she has these people who are also lying and manipulating. Can we point out the lying and manipulation that are being done by Christian and his friends throughout this to Danny? It's not just this, you know, village that's being lying and manipulative to her. Uh, we see this whole scene with mirrors. Mirrors are the huge thing with these. There's two scenes with mirrors. There's the one where uh, she's in her apartment having this conversation with him like, hey, why wouldn't you tell me where you're going? And he's like, I'm just going to leave. And she's like, no, 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 uh, please stay. Oh, my God. I did not mean to, like, disturb things. I'm just I want to talk about this. Like, why wouldn't you feel comfortable telling me you're leaving the country for a month? Like, who wouldn't do that to their to their partner like that's really crazy and that is that's fucking nuts it, i swear to god if someone i was with did that i would be very pissed off and it would be justifiably pissed off um so that was the first mirror scene uh and then the second mirror scene is when we go into christian's apartment and he's like hey guys uh so i kind of invited danny to the trip uh, ooh, uh, so I, I told her that you guys invited her just like play along. She's not actually going to go. And it's like just this constant manipulation. And I think Danny finally figures out that Christian is the most manipulative and the most lying of all of the people more so than Pele, honestly, is, uh, when they're standing there talking about this book being missing. Hey, if you see the book, put it back. Uh, we won't be mad. Just, you know, sneak it back over there. There's a conversation that's had where Christian is like, that guy's not my friend. They've ne that, that person doesn't represent me. He's not my friend. Stabs him in the back and you actually see Danny go, oh my God, you are a lying, manipulative psycho. What the hell are you doing to us? Like you're making us look really bad. And you could tell they were like, okay, yeah, he's definitely bear suit material. <laughs> you know, they're like, okay, yeah, he's garbage. Um, it's... Uh, these lying manipulations that are also done by them, were they right in manipulating these manipulators into this sacrifice is the question. I mean, we didn't know enough about Simon and Connie, and obviously that was messed up. Uh, and we even hear from, well, Poulter's character, the, the, the fool, that he saw Connie running through the forest before she gets murdered, right? Like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like um did they feel like these people were qualified because they were shitty people can i just well, I think, uh, oh go ahead ben okay I, I was just gonna say that i think there is definitely a degree to which they probably were qualified for their particular roles because what we're really talking about here are cycles and archetypes right i mean like that's i think that really sort of gets to the core of the real point of this movie is that we are talking about a natural cycle and things that you see repeating over time, over and over and over again. And so, yeah, I mean, like, you're probably looking for particular kinds of people to, to play particular kinds of roles in this ritual. Um, and I do also want to say that it's really interesting that your friend who was going through a breakup um, particularly enjoyed this movie. Because I think if we go back to what the director really said, like, I mean, obviously, yes, he said it's supposed to be a breakup movie, but like he was actually going through a particular rough, particularly rough breakup at the time that he decided to make this movie. And so what he needed there, and I think the reason he partic 
picked this particular kind of like theme for this particular movie was because it's really supposed to be about transformation, right? So it's a cycle. It's about transformation. There are common themes that happen over and over and over again. And there's supposed to be a way to sort of push this through and be able to make this go from good to uh, all right, so we're live again. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. This is our part two. I, I, you know what? I knew exactly what I was doing. Let's go with that. This is part two. Part one was so amazing and long. We thought we would just throw up another chat and do part two for you. Um, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about Did with this movie- Did you manipulate us into I, this? Yeah, you didn't know this, but I had planned this all along. Yeah, <laughs> I had planned this all along. Uh, I wanted to see how far, it's very creep-esque of me. I wanted to see how far I could take you, you know, if you'd be willing to I pop back in. I should have seen in. the signs. I should have seen the signs. They were all behind you. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, my, my With favorite. With editing, none of this will happen. Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> I'll, I'll put it to you this way. My favorite soccer player is Pele. Um, all right. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention, I, I, I Ben, I, I know, had some comments. I Let's, let's tie together all of this. I, I feel like we've... Um, We've hit the communal stuff very heavily. And I think rightly so. This is a movie that relies on that a ton. I mean, part of the movie is what, I mean, the appeal of the movie largely is what will happen next. There's, in that sense, it has a kind of hostile feel. And hostile, what violent thing will we see next, right? What's, what gruesome image will we see? And in Midsummer, there's a what event will happen next sort of vibe. What what are we going to see next? And I think that ties into um, the communal, the community. I mean, that wouldn't exist without these group, this group of people, the Harga people who are doing these things. But I feel like we do a disservice to ultimately an entire layer of this movie if we don't talk primarily about Danny in regard to all of this. This is a movie about Danny. Um, and as interesting as it is to talk about the ethics of the Harga people and what they're doing and what lens to see it through, and those are all valid conversations, I don't want to invalidate those at all. I mean, I guess I took away from this movie that aspect is very secondary. Um, important, but very secondary. I saw this movie as a, a, a movie about a person struggling and the wrong way to handle that struggle. Um, True story, when I left the second showing of this movie at Alamo Draft House, I, I love this. I was walking out and a boyfriend and girlfriend um, were talking about it and the guy goes, I don't understand, like, why did she kill him? It was like the greatest, like, it was the best. I, I, I was, oh God, I was, I was almost that guy, like, that would interject. I was almost douchey enough to do it, but I wouldn't, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to, like, give my opinion. But anyway, I, but I feel like, you know, I feel like that was a real big part of this. I think that was the central part of this. Um, you know, uh, I I think that when we tie all of these things together, uh, and I especially want to underscore again that the fact that there's no darkness, no darkness in this movie other than the beginning. Do you ever notice that? Like all of the American parts, the opening parts are all snowy, dark, um, and then everything in Sweden is bright. I, I think this might be Astor's way of sort of bringing to light his own struggles, working through that in the open. 
right? I think that that's a, a large part of this movie. I think the sociology piece that we've been talking about constantly was a great narrative device to keep the characters in the setting. Like one of the things we always talk about horror movies choking on is why didn't you just leave? Well, there's a really great reason to stay here. And we've been like fighting about it and arguing about it all night. And I, that's great. That is the sign of a good, uh, that's a sign of a well thought out, I should say, uh, horror film. Um, I, I think that that was a great angle to keep all of the characters in place. Um, and I think that a movie like Midsummer should be contrasted. This, this may get a little contentious. I'm trying to not be contentious because we've had such an awesome disagreement tonight. So I'm trying to bring the strands together maybe to an agreement, but I'm gonna fuck that up now, just like Jim did earlier. I'm gonna fuck that up now in like two seconds. I would contrast this film with Mandy. Um, the Nick Cage version, although oddly enough, Nick Cage was in Wicker Man, the remake, which was terrible. Um, but in Mandy is a very psychedelic trip sort of movie. And I think this movie did it better. I think that you don't need to so overly envelop uh, the entire story like as one giant mushroom trip. The climax may be another good example too, where you don't see any of the psychedelic trip at all. And I think in mid and, and it's a fantastic movie and it's horrifying. Um, and uh, because you empathize with the characters, so we're very, very similar to some of the things I've been saying. But in Midsummer, you get really unique special effects that are almost just like interspersed like salt and pepper. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 spiced up right at the the right amount. It's not like a, it's not a overwhelming, I guess. And so. Um, you know, I would contrast it with with the movie like Mandy that I think is is trying to. Do, I don't know. I I won't get into Mandy too much. Uh, I I could not. One of the few movies I've ever walked out of was Mandy, and I know there's a lot of Mandy fans. Oh so. Mandy! Oh Mandy! You came yeah. in. Well, yeah. So did Christian. <laughs> Christian came too. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, I so I wanted to throw those thoughts in. Um, and. Uh, maybe just end my thoughts with kind of the distinction between Danny and Christian, right? Like Danny, uh, Florence Pugh's affect in this movie is almost legendary. Her face, I think it was Jim in one of our text message who said like, I wanted like Mandy's face or I want um, uh, Danny's face. What, what, what yeah, did you say? It was, uh, it was Florence Pugh's face uh, is like a soundtrack. I hope it reacts to everything in my life or something along <laughs> those lines. Yeah, like she, she, her face is fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, I mean, she's think of the scene where the the you know the uh, geriatric flying death scene. Um, you know, the, her face is shocked. She's grimacing. She's falling over. Uh, she's processing things with extreme emotion. Whereas Christian is like a deer caught in a headlight. He's got very little emotion. He's a wall. He refuses to process. Um, by the way, of all of the horrific shit that goes on in this movie, um, Danny only vomits once. She doesn't vomit when she sees. Uh, she doesn't vomit when she sees the flying elderly folks. She doesn't vomit when she sees all the manner of violence going on in this movie. She vomits when she sees Christian having sex with the Harga woman. Um, and that to me was very, that took me away from the communal into pushing this back to a very personal, very individual level about the needs of a person shifting from one healthy, one unhealthy thing to another unhealthy thing. 
Um, and I think working working it out all in the open. I, I like to think of everyone that died at the end of this movie. Think of all of the people from the United States, from London, and then the, the, the few that were from the, uh, the Harga people themselves. There's a religious ceremony there, so there's a religious aspect. There's a scientific uh, com a component to that in the sense that you have these sociologists trying to understand, trying to uh, qu uh, quantify and study. There's a hedonistic element uh, in there too with uh, the fool who's clearly a guy who just wants to fuck. Um, there's a communal thing. And so you take all these together, put them into one um, abstract, it's not abstract, one literal um, mechanism, like a room and destroy it and burn it up. It's almost like, you know, I, I feel like Aster is sort of saying like that the ending of this movie is bringing together all of these avenues to understand oneself in light of those things, to understand one's uh, oneself and one's need in light of religion, in light of science, in light of, you know, sort of the self, hedonism, community, like all of these different paths and throwing them all up and burning them, you know, out in the open for everyone to see. I mean, I felt like that's, this was Astor's movie. This was his, this was what he was doing for himself. Um, so I, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on communally. We've touched on it for like two hours, two and a half hours now. But I, I want to take this back to the individual level because I think that that was, to me, the centerpiece. Did you guys have anything else on the, the level of codependency, the relational issues, anything that you wanted to add in that sense? I'd love to hear it. I, I, for, for me, the communal, uh, uh, the community aspect, the, uh, the abuse of empathy, the uh, uh, subversion and uh, coversion of empathy is... Uh, is relevant because everything that we see happening in the uh, in the village is internalized. Uh, everything, uh, everything that happens uh, on the camera uh, that we can see externally is occurring inside Danny as well. Um, uh, uh, her her arc for me is uh, starting from a place of uh, extreme external vulnerability. And uh, outside of her relationship with Christian, she has um, this. Uh, very demanding dance with her uh, dance with her sister. Um, we don't have it explicitly spelled out what her relationship with parents is like, but it doesn't uh, doesn't seem like uh, there's uh, huge wellsprings of emotional resource coming from that direction as well. For example, uh, when she sees the distressing messages from uh, from her sister. Um, she isn't. Uh, I, I, we got we got a close up of of the phone. Um, of her phone and her calling history, um, and she's uh, mostly trying to re-engage her sister. She's not uh, chatting with her, trying to get mom to chat on Facebook. Um, so that uh, that leads me to believe that she's viewing herself as kind of uh, the primary functioning adult in in this family unit. Um, uh, the initial uh, uh, the initial relationship with Christian uh, absolutely catastrophically codependent um his relationship I, I think his relationship with his friends and how they view Danny is also um uh crucial um that uh, he is at, uh, uh, Christians at a pivot point of uh as you pointed out in the in initial synopsis willing to end this relationship because he uh, thinks he has to um and uh then backs away from that because uh because of Danny's crisis um I think, again, I, I really, I don't, 
I feel like we focus on her relationship with Christian because he is the context. That relationship is the context that we see her operate in primarily. Um, but I think we have these little nudges along the way um, as she's interacting with the group of uh, the group of friends or frenemies um, that indicate that she will adapt to whatever context she's put in. Um, Danny has very, very permeable boundaries um, right at the beginning, highly permeable boundaries and a conflict resolution style that skews hard toward appeasement. Um, I think she was only able to get in, uh, to reach a position where she could reject Christian um, because she had already integrated uh, kind of, as you were saying, uh, integrated a different um, identity framework, a different collective identity framework. Um, and I think we saw that ultimate rejection of Christian mirrored much, much earlier in the movie uh, regarding her uh, seeking to appease the friends regarding when everyone's going to take their mushrooms. Um, uh, friends say right now, she says, I'm not down for it. Christian says, well, then I'm not down for it either. Uh, friends keep at it. And then she convinces Christian, let's all take our mushrooms now. That, that to me, um, foreshadowed her ultimate rejection of Christian in favor of a larger collective. I mean, on the, on the uh, topic of codependence, um, I, I do want to interpret that a little bit more individualistically, like sort of Noah alluded to. Um, <clears throat> just like with the uh, the collectivism that we see here and the kind of like the structure of of this this society that everything is sort of based in. Honestly, for me, that's that's probably about twenty five percent of the movie is is that structure. <clears throat> the other twenty five percent is probably going to be the individual character development. Um, a third 25% would be the interaction of those characters with the collectivistic structure that we see. So how do they transform as a result of being thrown into this? And then a remaining 25%, of course, for all the technical, incredible beauty that we see in terms of like the visuals, the lighting, you know, obviously the, the art choices on the walls that allude to the entire story, the music. Um, anyway, that being said, so codependence. Um, I, I, I honestly think that there's sort of like a larger um, analogy to be, derived from this so as we can see yes this movie was about Ari Aster's breakup or whatever it was he contextualized that within the festival of midsummer midsummer because midsummer is about transformation it's about throwing away the old so that you can prepare yourself for the new abundance to come i think that's that's what it spoke of to me so whenever we look at danny's character and we see her codependence that's the, the reason that that's so important and the reason that that's emphasized, not just because it's supposed to be about Ari Aster's breakup, but because that's the thing that she has to sacrifice in order to move forward. Now, of course, we can see this as being, you know, Joy Luck Clubbish or whatever. Like, I mean, it's like uh, if you strip away certain aspects of this movie, it's like your typical feel good. OK, well, you know, woman has a bad relationship experience. She reconnects with her friends, maybe a new set of friends. Uh, finds a new meaning and foundation of family, and then she's able to move through that in a positive way. Obviously, the way that this becomes horror is because the mechanism by which she's able to transform and throw away that codependence is really kind of fucked up and sort of weird because people are being sacrificed and people are dying. But sacrifice is the perfect way, the perfect way to demonstrate how you can get rid of a codependent relationship by 
burning that connection that you had with that person who was toxic in your life. I think the pivotal scene you're absolutely right to point out is when she's crying on the floor with those others from the collective after just having seen Christian in that sexual act, because that's finally when she's able to fully take in and process how toxic he is. And of course, sex, I think, is, is something that we typically see as like a marker point for the beginning and ending of romantic relationships, right? Like whenever you're ready and done with one relationship, you're ready to move on. A lot of people will engage in some random sexual relationship just to mark the end of that other relationship so they can start to move on to somebody else. Even if that person that they chose isn't the somebody else, it's a good way to capstone relationships. It's just the way it is. So she sees this happen. She fully takes that into herself. She sees the toxicity. She begins to process it. In a way, if you listen closely, that I kind of interpreted her their sounds as being almost like childbirth. It's almost like she's giving birth to a new persona by burning away that codependence that she had with this other toxic person. Honestly, I mean, for me, like it, at, at the macro level, that's why codependence is so important here because it fits perfectly with the themes of sacrifice, relationships with the theme of cycles from summer to winter to summer again. It all just fits together quite nicely. Um, but it's really all about um, the interaction. I want to point with you. Okay, go ahead. I, on that point, I, I think it's really important that we talk about um, the idea of getting rid of toxic relationships. A lot of people will say that it's wrong to get rid of certain people out of your lives. But let's look at the situation we had at hand. We have a person who she's with who can't even say I love you necessarily. He's like yeah i love you too um but on top of that her friend is like maybe this is not the right guy for you but on top of that we know that he's been talking shit about her with his friends when we hear uh his friends say she's not even having sex with you like why are you with this person and that's a really crazy thing to like be talking openly with a group of your friends about like that's a really personal thing for a group like i can understand if you're like one-on-one -on -one with your bestie but to have that as like everyone in the group knows of it including the manipulative pele right <laughs> he's in on this whole problem they're having uh the fact that they're not even sexual anymore really is a telltale sign that they're just not together anymore and not only that there's other signs too where uh, he doesn't even remember their anniversary. He doesn't remember her birthday. He doesn't remember all these. He, he's so not in it. He is so not in this relationship. Um, so it's it's pretty obvious that there's something going on with their relationship that's very dark. Um, and we do have metaphors we use in our everyday life when we talk about getting rid of those kinds of relationships. We say we're burning bridges, right? Uh, and maybe this is a form of burning a bridge, which what is interesting is the shape of the hut where they're doing this. I don't know about the symbols in the um, inside of the, the triangle little hut, but from what I've tried to research the shit out of this, but from what I know that that triangle shape is literally uh, a door, which is funny because the door is a door. So that's a pun. I think Noah might appreciate that. <laughs> it's a, there's a pun in the shape of the building maybe, um, but it's a door and uh the idea of burning a bridge maybe isn't the greatest metaphor. Maybe the idea of uh, shutting the door or burning the door or uh, getting away from that door, uh, that room, 
may be what is actually being conveyed there. Um, and maybe the, the people that are a part of it are all um, ideas of what he is all together. Like, yeah, he may embody the bear, that beast, but there's other elements of him that is there, like the know-it-all and the fool and uh, the one that wants to run away from it all. These might all be metaphors for the type of person he is and the relationship and the things she needs to eliminate from her life. So this might just be a giant, I, I don't, is it allegory or metaphor? I, I always mix those up, but one of those <laughs> is what this metaphor. entire hut, this door, uh, she's closing the door uh, and burning the bridge of all the elements of him that are just not right. And there are elements of him that are family. There are elements of him that are friends. There are elements of him that are sacrificial. Not all of him are these bad traits, but half of him is these bad traits. And maybe that's not the right thing for her. So this could completely be that metaphor that's necessary for describing this is not the relationship for me. This is not the person for me and I need him out of my life. Maybe it wasn't an actual literal death. Maybe it was um, something she dreamed of how she got rid of this toxic person from her life who does not understand her, who she does not want to have sex with, whose friends are completely <laughs> unimportant to her and just bye. Bye, bitch. It could be a giant metaphor for bye, bitch. I don't know. <laughs> But it's it's what comes next. It's what comes after the burning that I think makes this a horror movie. It's it's not the burning of the things. It's 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 what she's left with, and has she really changed from Christian to Harga? And I don't think this movie in any way gives you any reason to think that at this giant climax of burning this entire toxic previous relationship away that Danny is a different person, that she's gonna be uh, emotionally different, more stable, that she's get, there's no health in this movie at all. Nothing, nothing good has happened for Danny by the end of this movie. That's why it's horrifying, you know what I mean? So I, 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 I'm I think maybe we disagree here, like this, it, like you shouldn't see the burning as in existing in a vacuum. Perhaps it it could be a good thing if a person gets rid of all of those negative energies. I sound like a fucking new age, but toxic relationships, bad things. Like up until that point, I got you. I'm with you. These are positive things. They're good. And maybe Aster, that's part of the equation for Aster, maybe, right? But I, I think what she ends up falling for in place of it, what undergirded that burning, the system that got her there was inherently manipulative and vile and bad, right? That That's why this is a horror movie. There are plenty of bad breakup movies that are po like that are good and positive. There are, there's just tons of those movies, but this is something else. This is, that smile at the end of Midsummer is, the horror to, to me, like this is how I interpret this. That smile is one of the most horrific ways to ending, end a movie ever because Danny had, there's Danny is the same Danny as the first fucking scene of the movie. And she thinks she's traversed something, but she's just a part of a system that took her in from the very beginning and manipulated her. And that's I, horrifying. 
I agree that, yeah, yeah, there, there's some manipulation here, obviously, like we all agree on that part, like we've said already, but I don't think that you could argue, or at least I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't argue that she hasn't transformed by the end of the movie. I think there's a definite transformation. If you really think back to the beginning, it's not just her relationship with Christian that's a problem here. Obviously, she's been having psychological issues. She's taking medication. She's a wreck already. Part of that is because she's trying to deal with a suicidal sister who seems to be making constant threats. She then has that sister actually kill herself, but not only kill herself, but also her parents. And she's left totally distraught. And like the main foundation that's there, of course, that's supposed to be helping her is her boyfriend and maybe some other friends, perhaps there, there seems to be someone else that she's talking to, but maybe that's not very helpful. But I think it's made very clear in the opening, opening act of the movie that she is a total wreck. She is a absolute wreck and she's not functioning well in life. The transformation I think that occurs and the reason that the the reaction at the end of the movie is so confusing that there is conflicting emotion is because yes it seems like to me it's indicated that she's able to get rid of all of that she's probably gotten rid of the trauma of the loss of her family she's gotten rid of the codependent toxic relationships and yes it's in favor of this thing that is literally about killing other people like there's literally murders involved she's into this cult I'm getting like these weird fucking signals and it's making it really hard to make my point. So please slow down for two seconds, guys, two seconds. Yes. She's transformed into something different, not necessarily better. And that's what makes it horror. She has transformed. She's gotten rid of one set of trauma and introduced herself to something wholly, totally different that is arguably just as bad, if not worse. She's she's moved in the beginning of the movie. We find her failing to operate in a society that expects that individuals can set their own boundaries and maintain their uh, internal emotional equilibrium autonomously. Uh, we then see her at the end of the movie in a society that expects a total absence of that, and she she's getting along just fine. Um, uh, yeah, she's doing just fine at the end of a movie. Uh, at the end of the movie, in a society that demands that she has totally porous boundaries, no stable sense of self, um, and is uh, and requires constant external affirmation in order to function. Um, uh, uh, her pathology is identical. It's exactly the same at the end of the movie. She's operating in a context that not only encourages it, but actively cultivates that pathology um, and rewards it. Um, uh, her, her inability to, uh, set appropriate boundaries to differentiate herself from the collective context, um, uh, or to assert, uh, additional autonomy is rewarded at the, at the end of the movie. Um, uh, these, this, these symbols, this symbolic process is supposed to be cathartic. Um, uh, the, the festival of midsummer, the, um, uh, the, uh, embrace, uh, of, of this, uh, uh, the embrace of this uh, hedonistic experience, it's its supposed to be cathartic. It's supposed to build one uh, to to a position where uh, the old is, uh, uh, where the old is relinquished. And the Danny that required, the Danny that, the Danny that bullied Christian into taking the shrooms is intact. The Danny that, uh, uh, the, the Danny that went along with the, the social context as it was presented from the first frame to the end frame, we do not see Danny assert autonomy or independence at any point in time. 
the the closest the the closest thing to a real transformation of character that I think we I think we witness is in uh, the dinner table scene after the Maypole where we have Christian um, staring at Danny um, in a state, uh, uh, Christian extremely dosed at this point, staring at Danny with something that I read as regret and helplessness. Um, Christian in that moment realizes, uh, and this is just my read, I'm, I'm probably reading too much into it. Christian realizes that this is all going to play out. Um, how it's going to play out, that he is who he is, she is who she is, um, and that they have been put, they have both been put in a perfect position for who they are to play out to its natural conclusion without any option of redemption, uh, rediscovery, or transformation. Um, the, the horror for me of this of the movie is that all these symbols, which are not original to this movie, not original to this context, this is these these are very, very familiar archetypes in this movie, they are totally hollow. Uh, can I uh, point out that Danny is uh, like Daniel? And uh, we can think of Daniel in the lion's den uh, in biblical context. Um, where Daniel is put into a place where he surely should die, but he ends up being cool with the lions, right? Uh, I feel like her name was intentional as well as Christian's name being intentional. Um, and, and there are other names that, that could possibly be argued are intentional. But uh, I, I feel like there's so much intentional aspects done by Ari that, it makes it hard for us to decide, is it Ari who's being intentional or is it the tribe that's being intentional? And I think that's where a lot of our uh, disagreements are going, but I think we can all agree that these are really great metaphors and allegories and like uh, that the, uh, the things that are being told to us through story are not only historically accurate, and, and can we talk about how accurate historically uh, the art, the costume, the music, the hair, uh, everything seems to be very intentional and very accurate. Um, somebody spent a lot of time Googling shit <laughs> for this film. A lot of people probably. I, I thought it was fantastically uh, implemented in how we take old traditional stories and turn it into something new. It wasn't something that was borrowed. And we can we can actually argue that this film, although borrowing from so many other stories, was completely original. That's so hard to fucking do that I am so extremely impressed by their ability to pull that off. Holy fuck. Uh, that is probably the most impressive part about it. Um, the fact that you could actually look things up uh, and, and find that this is accurate to a particular tradition from thousands of years ago. Like, holy shit, how do they do that? Uh, guess studying and being anthropologists and then making fun of themselves and mocking it through the characters who are anthropologists, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe there was some self-loathing within this writing. I don't know. So we should, uh, we should probably wrap this up. This is the longest podcast we've ever done and probably the most divisive. So I'm mildly turned on right now. Um, so, uh, I, look, I, uh, I love this movie. I, I actually like it more 
now that I know that there's such a divisive layer in the middle of this between a the communal and the individual between almost the positive versus negative way you can view the ending. I mean, if I take, uh, I mean, to me, and maybe I'm totally misunderstanding Ben's um, interpretation of the ending of related to transformation, but if I, I feel like if I was to take Ben's interpretation, this movie would have a much more positive bend to me. And I, I, I just, I, I don't feel that when I go into this movie, every element of it is meant to make you uncomfortable and it's meant to hurt you. It's meant to scar you. That's what I felt like. I, there's nothing inherently positive in this. It's very aster. It's very hereditary. Um, you know, can I, I, can I just throw this out there though? Sure. When you guys were watching the scene with all the ladies that are naked, you guys were in a theater. How hmm. did your theater react? My theater, I will just point out, laughed their asses off at yeah, that scene. Yeah, awkward laughing. Very awkward laughing. Very awkward laughing. What was me. what was your audience reaction? I would like to know that. I my theater was mostly empty. I live in Evansville. <laughs> what were the cows doing in the <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's the running joke, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean I feel like it was uh there, there were a decent number of people watching this movie alongside me, but I don't think there was any awkward laughter or anything like that. Maybe really? people in Chicago were just desensitized to weird shit. Oh, that's wild. I mean, <laughs> it was it was really weird. It was like almost like an off the scene from The Office. It was kind of like ah, and then just quiet. And I was like, oh, this is fucking weird. Why am I? Ah, ah. Okay, we had the same audience reaction. Yeah, then. that's yeah. interesting. I, yeah, I, the I I'm I'm trying to recall the only I I think the only vocal reaction I heard was someone saying, oh no, no, don't. <laughs> like, I okay. think, yeah, I, we, we, I didn't really, oh, we could talk about this movie for like days, honestly. I, right, I, I would like to know the oh, audience yeah. reaction to that particular scene. And the only reason why I bring yeah. that up is uh, that may have something to do with our own reactions to it. It may have something to do with how other people are interpreting it. And it, it is fascinating to me, but I, I had a lot of laughs from my audience I was watching with, especially during that scene. And when you say it's, uh, it's Silver Fox, you say that this is like one of the most violent scenes you ever saw. And I think of all the nervous, and it wasn't like, ha this is hilarious. It was like nervous laughter, like that, anxiety ridden laughter like ah, when is this gonna stop holy shit i i feel like uh when you say that you were feeling this immense amount of anxiety i felt like my audience might have been on par with you <laughs> like I, I don't know i think it's very interesting audience reaction is important to a film right uh well on that score and i don't want to totally interrupt noah's final thoughts here but on that score the two audience members that I overheard as I was leaving the second showing of this film uh, were incredibly negative. They said, uh, the people who make these films don't understand anything. Like they were, there were two people who were like, oh, we should have gone to see Spider-Man instead. And I said, uh, well, that's good too. And I just kept walking. I really didn't engage with them at all. Though, of course, I was tempted to uh, to have sort of a question and answer with, with, with both of them. But in both cases, it's two people, uh, two different, I think, 
families or couples or whatever. Um, uh, one of them, I do remember saying, uh, I, I do remember one one family saying, we should never let dad choose the movie again. Um, I see so, both of those as compliments considering where you're from. What? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, that that's a com I think that's just a compliment to the movie. Like I, <laughs> I don't think. They but but it, it is like the, the they wouldn't say that. So they would say that if it was awkward and disturbed them, and that's kind of the point of the movie, like to make you feel like I why would I don't trust your thought. I like that when someone says that to me, and it, because it disturbed them, I've done something right. If they do it because they can give me sincere criticism of the film, you know that makes me think then that's that's different but i doubt that that's what they were after i mean maybe they were what the fuck do i know in my fantasy question and answer and the way i read that particular comment it was as though there wasn't that degree of critical thinking going on with the film that it was this shit is weird and we're not letting dad choose weird shit anymore and we're not going to play like that's this dad goals for me man if i have ever right. a kid that is dad goals right there uh, i feel like that's noah someday I, but that's you're not goals. you're not even trying to be a dad but you're probably just gonna like adopt somebody at some point i as, mean like, if a i do that's younger and you're gonna be like here's i i'm your dad now and i'm gonna tell you what movies to watch and it's gonna fuck you up yeah this, social this services gets called like, to be such an awkward moment in the line for popcorn mm-hmm yeah, when when Dad Noah chooses Event Horizon and we get to see Sam Neill's dick, then we'll go. Ah, oh, Dad's not choosing the movie anymore. Um, what was your What was your favorite scene, Timmy? When the old lady was pushing his butt. That was, you know, you know, like I don't. Yeah, that's yeah. anyway. Yeah, anyway, I, go ahead. Go I, on with I, your final thoughts. On that note, on that yeah, We're like on that. almost at three hours. <laughs> yeah, let's just <laughs> let's just do this all night. Who needs to worry about my name? Uh, yeah, no, I that was actually my one of my criticisms of the movie was that sex scene. So I, it was too abrupt for me. Uh, to, in some respects, it was very abrupt and jarring and almost too funny. Um, it definitely was awkward, and I get some of the. I, I mean, we've talked about it and and pulled I think as much from it as we can, but it was just on pace with the rest of the movie, it felt a little abrupt for me. Um, and because of that, I felt this movie was, that it, it loses points for me. Um, uh, I think the other negative things in this movie, or things that I, I dinged it for, was feeling a little too close to the original Wicker Man. I forgive it a little bit because most folk horror, it's a staple of the genre of folk horror to have something burning at the end, to have a sacrifice burning at the end. It's not just Wicker Man, it's not just Midsummer. there's tons of other movies like that. So I can be a little more forgiving. Christians burn shit too. Can yeah, we bring yeah. up Salem, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, yeah, I mean, it, I I, I want to be forgiving, but it it did feel a little a little too Wicker Manish. I I with all with all of the other unique stuff going on in this movie, um, I I feel like it could have been a unique opportunity to end this movie without fire, and I feel like Aster definitely has the mind to do that in a in a unique way, in a cool way. But he chose fire, which is fine. It just felt kind of close to Wicker Man. I think my biggest criticism of this movie, and this is a criticism of Aster in both Hereditary and in Midsummer, is um, how he treats mental illness, like bipolarity being on, you know, tying bipolarity together with murder um, is a bit 
also abrupt. I mean, like the entire, I felt like that was like the entire point of calling her, like, how do I want to phrase this? Like, um, we needed the family to be murdered and the excuse to make her bipolar seemed lazy. Um, you know, I, I, you know, she uses, uh, Danny uses Ativan in this, in this movie. And that is, you know, and she kind of seems a bit unstable. I, I take Ativan. I, I have panic attacks and I use Ativan. Um, and, and I am crazy. So maybe that was on purpose. Maybe actually that's why he put it in the movie. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to give it more. I'm going to give it high marks for that. Actually. I take this back. No, I, I, but I, I felt like, uh, I maybe it Your invitation is like... going to arrive in the mail next week. <laughs> yeah, I so I it was I, I'm curious to see I mean I think this is one of Astor's last horror films. I think the next movie he's going to make is a comedy, he said. Um but uh yeah, I I didn't dig the way that that was uh, that was thrown out. But look, here I I'll score the movie uh four and a half out of 5. Um I Hereditary scared me more, but I think Midsummer is the superior film. Um, I think cinematically it's superior. I think that we see Aster coming together. I, I think this movie is all of the best parts of Hereditary with more time, maybe more money, and it's it, it's a more gorgeous version of it. Um, Hereditary scared me way more because I got family issues. Familial horror shit scares me. Mom stuff scares me. I know myself well enough to know what scares me. Um, but someone else could go into Midsummer and ha be, be in a codependent relationship or have relationship issues, uh, feel like they're not a part of something bigger. Um, you'd be wrestling with being in a cult. I mean, I we all, people on this podcast right now, all of us, all these co-hosts have friends, one in particular that we all know who went through this. Um, so, you know, they may go into Midsummer and be left way more disturbed than they when they went into Hereditary. So, you know, fear is relative largely. I think going into these movies and being scared by them is is uh, largely relative. Hereditary scared me way more, but I think Midsummer, in almost every respect is a better movie. Um, and uh, that's hard for me to say because Hereditary is, I've never been the same since Hereditary, as I said in the intro. So I give this a four and a half out of five. I only ding it because of the mental illness stuff. I ding it because it felt God, just a little too close to Wicker Man and some of the abrupt sequences with humor. Other than that, I mean, my God, like the best horror film of 2019, I, I think better than Climax uh, up until this point for me. I know Jim's going to be like, Climax, what the fuck? Um, but up until this point, Climax had it, but I think Midsummer takes it. So uh, yeah, I give it four and a half. This is the cue for someone else to jump. I'll go. I'll go. Uh, it, just because I feel like I'm going to say crazy things and it'll be fun. Uh, I think the person who took Adivan was the hero of this film. Uh, and she was amazing and was one of the most well-acted scenes I've ever seen uh, in any horror film ever. Like, honestly, she is a new hero of mine. I, I love her. I hope to see her in more things. I can't believe she did... Uh, YouTube singing songs with her guitar a few years ago. That's crazy to me. Um, she was amazing. Uh, you would think she's been in a lot of really amazing films, but uh, I, I couldn't find anything else that she was in really. So um, I love the music in this film. I think it was so fitting. I think that there was a lot of thought that went into the sets, the costumes, the runes, uh, the understanding of different cultures, the understanding of Nordic like stories and traditions. 
you, you have a lot of understanding of what happens when you have mental illness and how you question yourself. And that is actually a huge problem in the mental you know, health community, like where you are on pills to help you cope with things. So maybe you don't understand everything around you and you start to question your own understanding of the world and may take cues from others over your own views because there might be something wrong with you. And this, I think, was very well portrayed by this character who felt like she was a burden and constantly was, I, I have a lot of friends who come to me like this, where they're like, oh, I might be a burden. And I'm like, oh, I need to exercise this demon out of you. <laughs> like, you are not a burden. Your understanding of the world is not wrong. Uh, and you need to understand that. Like someone has told you that your mental health issues mean that you're wrong and that you're horrible. And that's not true. Um, so I feel like she very much embodied what that is what it is to feel like you you might be uh, incorrect and how you might be able to buy into somebody else's viewpoints that easily. Um, I think that the metaphor that could go with the boyfriend issues was very much there, but I also love that it could just be a story in and of itself and not have anything to do with metaphors. God, it I don't know, it hits so many points to me. Like it was beautiful to look at it was beautiful to listen to it. Every aspect of it was perfect for me. It hit every nail on the head. Uh, and it had cranial, uh, you know, problems hit again. So, you know, this is Ari's like flavor. <laughs> he likes to smash some heads in and, and he does a very, very good job at figuring out how to make it look realistic. Um, and not just make it look realistic, but fuck with you in a dream sequence where it goes backwards and puts the face back together again. Holy shit, what the fuck are you doing? Um, I don't know. This is one of those things that hits all the perfect sweet notes for me. And I, I've talked extensively about it for hours with friends. I've talked extensively with you guys about it. Uh, and then I watched it again and I talked extensively about it. it it's nonstop. I cannot stop talking about this movie. This will forever be in my mind. This is a 10 movie for me. Absolutely 10 out of 10. Everybody should go see it. And if you have a problem with it, maybe that is something that you need to uh, start talking to yourself about. <laughs> you know, like if you have an issue with it, maybe there's something in it that's making you need to talk to somebody about some issues, right? So I, I don't know. This is one of those, yay, I love this movie. And it scared the shit out of me, but it also made me laugh a lot. What the fuck? I, I don't know. I have so many emotions and so many feelings that I can't stop talking about it. So, well, it did, it did, it did the trick. It did what it was meant to do. That's what, it, that's a, those are all accolades to a great horror film. You know what I mean? Those are all, those, that's what you want when you go see a horror movie. That's awesome. I can, uh, okay. Unless you want to. Which no, Ben will it no, be? You. Oh my God. Can no, I, you, can please. I, can no, I make you, this please. joke? <laughs> I have to, I have to make this joke. I don't give it 10 out of 10. I give it Ben out of Ben because I kind of agree with both of you. Oh shit. I went there. Oh my Amazing. God. I well, give I, it, I, 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 I give it Ben out of Ben. I, that is my new phrase. I, Thank I, you, Shira. I, I, I have to say that I, I do love that. Uh, 
the two perspectives on this movie that are most opposed are are from the Bens, uh, especially since we don't typically disagree. Certainly, never this dramatically. Um, we have we have. I, I don't think we've ever disagreed this this starkly on our take on a movie. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a ten out of ten and ten uh, for me. So that's ten out of ten, and probably ten years before I'm going to see it again. Um, uh, this this was not fun, scary at all. Um, uh, this this was uh, profoundly disturbing, and and. Uh, uh, in a way that uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I say it'll be ten years before I see it again, but I know I'm going to buy it the second that I can, um, and and watch it at least twice that night. Um, uh, we yeah, we didn't spend much time talking about the uh, uh, the cinematography is breathtaking. Um, I there was not a single cut in the entirety of this movie that irritated me, and that's uh, that's saying a lot. Um, uh, I I am. Uh, Easily irritated, uh, editorially, um, and uh, this this did not do that. Um, uh, the choice to the the choice to light it the way that they did was absolutely fantastic. I loved the use of visual effects throughout. Um, the almost subliminal use of, of visual effects was absolutely fantastic. Um, I love uh, I I love that the entire plot. Is spelled out in the art design um, and that if you know how to read it, uh, you'll know how the movie's going to end uh, about an hour and a half before it actually does. Um, I love that, and we didn't even talk about this. I'm just going to throw it out there. I love that there is meat on the table, but there is no goddamn livestock in this village. Um, and I love that after the Maypole, the, uh, the, the roast on the table has a very distinct set of human breasts. Um, uh, so I, I, I did, I did appreciate that that we never got told that cannibalism is going on. But by the way, cannibalism is going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, everything about the movie is absolutely fantastic. It's uh, <sighs> If Ari Aster wanted to adapt Steppenwolf, Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf, uh, for a film, uh, this is more or less how I imagine it would play out. Um, we we have a, a, a total inversion of um, interior and exterior world, um, and I I love it and am profoundly distressed by it. So thorough recommendation. Oh, and I but I, I will say that my ten out of ten does come with the caveat that I. Totally agree um, with Noah. I would I would really love it if we would stop leaning on mental illness as a uh, plot crutch, um, and especially when we portray it as haphazardly as we tend to. All right, I'll go ahead and pick up this, uh, Jim, if you're comfortable ending. Um, all right, cool. So I I honestly I I still can't stop thinking about the the very end scene of the movie and and there was something in particular that came to mind whenever i saw this because it did seem like there was a obviously she was smiling and it seemed like a great joy and a great relief in my interpretation to be read of the things that she was throwing into the fire casting out and sacrificing but also i i believe there were tears and so i guess the question is whether those are tears of joy tears of sadness but 
to me, I think this this scene, this last shot, is reminiscent of uh, a particular sculpture, uh, the Ecstasy of Saint Teresa. So, um, in this sculpture, essentially, what we have depicted is Saint Teresa um, sort of leaning back in this this look of ecstasy, obviously, on her face. But there is an angel with a spear that is on fire. Um, essentially stabbing this into her, pulling out her entrails and setting her ablaze. Um, and th this is actually described. So this sculpture was taken from uh, her own autobiography. And so I just, I want to read the way that she describes this experience that she had and why this sculpture was made the way it was. So uh, here, here's what she had to say about this experience. She says, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold and at the iron's point, there seemed to be little, a little fire he appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul is satisfied now with nothing less than God. The pain is not bodily, but spiritual, though the body has its share in it, it is a caressing of love so sweet, which now takes place between the soul and God that I pray God and his holy God of his goodness, excuse me, to make him experience it, who may think that I am lying. And what I take from this, like what's most striking for me, this is combination of joy and sadness and how that ties into a love that is attributed to the experience of God. Now, I think we've discussed on this podcast before that that sort of place in everyone that sort of craves that that spiritual, that divine, uh, what we've also referred to uh, in a, um, a reference to It's Always Sunny as the God hole. And so I really think that if you want to analogize that or analogize that to the place that a cult-like following might occupy in someone's heart, that might be that same place where they now feel this love of the collective and something that's been imparted on them by what they sort of like feel is now going to be the foundation for their very experience of life. Now, of course, that's where the manipulation comes in and how you're able to take a vulnerable person and push that onto them. But again, what we see is that combination of that pain and that joy rolled up into one experience that they interpret as the love of God. Now, I really think that that says a lot about the experience that Danny has at the end of this movie, where she's burned away parts of herself that were once incredibly important and now replaces that with the traditions of a, a very small Swedish culture um, that seem horrific from the outside. And I think we're probably all in agreement are objectively manipulative and objectively wrong. But to her, sort of occupy that place in her heart. Now, that's kind of like the way I see the ending of this movie. Obviously, there's, there's, I think, a conflict there. I think we've already fleshed that out enough where it seems like, you know, there's a casting away of the things that were dragging her down and sort of like this balance where I think they're communicating that death is necessary for the propagation of life and for growth. I really think that's at the core of this movie for her. Um, but anyway, so like we've already fleshed all that out. I think we've, we've sort of, um, we've, we've done that to death essentially. So I'm, I'll leave it at that. Um, obviously I, I do at least agree with, uh, other Ben on the, the cinematography of this film. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Obviously there is some really cool stuff that they did with music where I, I really enjoyed it. It didn't seem cheesy at all where they actually had people in their little uh, area that were playing instruments, but that sort of became the background music of the scene for the movie. And I thought that was very cool. Um, there's also obviously like with everything on the walls, it sort of gives away the plot. That's fantastic. That's really, really interesting. Another thing to point out here is that of course they didn't shoot this in Sweden. 
speed in. So the effect that they have on light is totally artificial. Like I, I can't imagine the trouble that they had trying to maintain the particular positions of like shadows and the litness of all of these scenes whenever they weren't in Midsommar, like they weren't in Sweden, they were at some other part in the world where they had to really focus in on their schedules and make sure everything was timed just right to maintain that illusion. Absolutely fantastic. Um, the problems that I think I had with this movie are actually the same problems that I had with, uh, with us and that I think Jordan Peele in that movie had issues sort of like making everything seem as cohesive as they possibly could have. In this movie, I would have liked to have seen more tie-ins with the beginning of the film. There were flashbacks and that's okay. But it seemed to be like sort of left behind as we sort of progressed in Danny's experience of this culture and all the crazy things that were going on. All of the characters were very interesting and their interactions with that particular culture were really, really intriguing um, and very fulfilling. But if they were going for an archetypal role, which I think they were going for, it could have been more explicit which roles they were playing because they all just seem kind of like different versions of sort of like assholes, right? I mean, like one guy pisses on the ancestors of, you know, whatever, the ashes of their ancestors. Another one is totally horrible in his relationship with Danny. Um, others are completely rejecting and, and angry and like horrible at the people that were just trying to be hospitable and obviously about the culture. And yes, of course there's all this death going on and that's what they're rejecting. But from the perspective of that culture, they're just being like really, really sort of aggressive and antagonistic. They all just seem to sort of blend together just a little bit. So it would have been nice if there was some distinction between each archetype that each one was supposed to be fulfilling. Other than that though, I think this was really great. Um, and I'm probably going to have to give this a, a four out of five, um, primarily just for slight issues with the narration. But otherwise, I mean, it's a fantastic film. It's very good. Yeah, I concur with you, Ben. I'm actually at four out of five as well. Um, one of the things that we've kind of touched on but haven't given, for my money at least, enough due is the performances by especially Florence Pugh, which I've talked about her face being a soundtrack, but uh, also I think Will Poulter is amazing in this movie. Now, he has kind of a thankless role. We've kind of uh, dismissed him as quote-unquote the fool, but he is he plays that part perfectly and some of the comedic lines that he delivers at the beginning of this film especially um wow she's hot i'd like to give her a bath um which is kind of this sideline that nobody kind of notices and i think it's even adr it's hilarious and his delivery is hilarious so will poulter william jackson harper is fantastic in this film and uh, Jack Rayner as well. I think all of these performances are really, really strong. Like one of the things that I don't think that uh, Ari Aster has gotten enough credit for is how he's able to coax really great performances out of his actors. I'm still on the hashtag Oscar for Tony uh, bandwagon, how Tony Collette should have definitely gotten an Oscar for best actress last year. For hereditary um i'm not holding any grudges at all all of the grudges anyway um so let's uh, so those are some specific things that i want to talk about i want to highlight the performances um uh by all of the actors in this film and i so when i walked out of this film um, my first reaction was that this had done what Hereditary didn't. So Hereditary, I thought, 
had a really good metaphor. Um, I thought I read hereditary as a metaphor for mental illness. And I, you know, outlined that point of view on our hereditary podcast. You can see that uh, on the channel. Um, but what hereditary failed at was, in my view, was uh, world building. It seemed as though that the demon um, did all of the things that the plot demanded of the demon at the time that the plot demanded the demon be able to do those things. So world building was a, a problem with hereditary, uh, whereas the metaphor was really strong. In this case, I thought that the uh, world building was fantastic. I got a really good sense of the Swedish commune. I got a really good sense of the world in which these so-called intellectuals live in. I got a really good sense of all of the world, but the meta I walked out of this film a little bit more confused about the metaphor than I wanted to be. Now, over the course of this podcast and interacting with the Bens and uh, Noah and Shayra, I've been able to like parse together that metaphor a little bit more cohesively than I did when I walked out of the film. But that doesn't change the fact that when I walked out of the movie, I wasn't totally sure what Ari Aster was saying with this movie. Um, to my mind, I, what I took away from the film was the idea that this was against how hell is both other people, but also so is heaven, that other people give us a sense of community, give us a sense of belonging, give us a sense of uh, um, uh, oneness with a group, but that oneness can be deceptive and, uh, and, and cancerous. And I thought that was a really profound metaphor, but at the same time, I wasn't really sure that that was what the film was saying. And it, it felt as though that there wasn't a truly cohesive vision, um, being expressed in, in the film. And, uh, in that sense, I walked out of the film a little bit more confused than I wanted to be. Now, I don't think it should take a three and a half hour almost podcast to be able to sort of suss out a metaphor of a movie. Um, and so, and even right now, I don't necessarily know that I am entirely convinced by any of my conclusions about this movie. Um, so in that sense, it, it, it exists in this kind of, um, uh, it, it exists in this space of m uh, more interpretive work than it is, like I have to do more interpretive work than the film is doing in, in uh, telling me what it wants to say. Um, and it, it, so that's why I'm kind of pulling back a little bit about this film. Obviously, I'm still recommending it. Obviously, I'm still giving it a strong rating. But I wish that the the what was presented on the on the screen was a little bit more cohesive as it relates to the metaphor and as it relates to the themes that the film was saying. And, and that's that's kind of uh, I'm 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 nitpicking. Um, but I'm also, uh, as I said, recommending the movie. So I give it four out of five stars. I think its cinematography is fantastic. I think its direction is fantastic. I think the act acting is incredible. I want it to be a little bit more cohesive in terms of whatever 
whatever metaphor it's trying to express to me. To be fair, to defend a three and a half hour uh, length, I mean, we could we could talk about Bambi for like six hours. All of us here, like we, I, we I did our, we, yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 I could I could do Bambi for six hours. I, I that sounded really wrong the way I said that. I could talk about Bambi, the Bambi film, for six hours. Uh, yeah, it, like well, think of uh, think of the uh, what did April Fool's uh, video we did? It was supposed to be like a really quick thing. Uh, like we all give our little opinions, and it being like twenty three minutes. I thought I fe it felt like four. You know what I mean? Felt like four minutes. Anyway, anyway. We're, we're I could talk about this movie for so much motherfucking longer. If you want to give me a challenge, I could at least yeah, get 12 like, hours. Probably. I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I'm not, uh, <laughs> we're going to turn this think, podcast off. I think off I've dialed down it. immensely. Like, honestly, if we don't do another show on this movie, I may cry at some point in bed like why aren't we talking about midsummer again like the final scene of midsummer like the like the the uh, poster like with her single yeah, here it's gonna be shara i'm gonna photoshop shara why are we talking about yeah, it was only again. three and a half hours i'm not, uh, I'm not criticizing uh, i know i'm just saying uh, like if anybody ever wanted to try to be like how could you talk this long about a movie Bitch, I could go for so much. Try <laughs> <Yeah, we, laughs> me. We frequently get comments that our analysis was longer than the movie, and we, I, I mean, it's entirely possible that we could go uh, double the length of the film on this. Uh, I cannot go for longer than a movie when it comes to movies like, say, Annabelle. Probably mm, not going to go mm. that. Wouldn't it be I great probably, if we like YouTube this and there was like a seven hour analysis of Annabelle? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I couldn't. If you uh, wanted to challenge me, hey, could you talk for three and a half hours about <laughs> Annabelle? No, bitch. I, I, no. I, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not a lot of, not, not a lot of meat on that bone. Uh, well, hey, look, uh, next week we are doing uh, Hagazusa. I think that's Ben's pick one of the bends yeah by the way whenever you guys whenever both of the bends disagree i'm gonna refer to that as um having the bends but not like the bends but like the having the bends i i just i thought of that for some reason like I, you guys gave me the bends um anyway on that note hagazusa next week also a folk horror film of sorts scandinavian folk horror i think um and be prepared because it is a slow burn in fact it is such a slow burn that roger e roger ebert referred to the witch as a film that seemed as zippy as Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift in comparison. So... RogerEbert.com. I don't think that was actually Roger Ebert. I think he might be... Might have been dead since that film was... Killed. Came back from oh, the yeah, dead. RogerEbert.com. Two years <laughs> yeah, that review. Yeah, that's what I, yeah my bad. I think I, I think I literally said Roger He's Ebert. a zombie yeah. at this point. <laughs> he tells us what movies yeah. to watch. Yeah. No, this was a one-time deal. One time deal, just this one movie. He came back to give that one stinger of a line, and right back in the grave, never again. It's like it's like the, the movie Far and Away, uh, where Tom Cruise's dad like dies and then comes back to life, and he's like, "Dad, Dad, you're back alive. What's going on?" He's like, "Son, you're odd. You came back from the dead to tell me I'm odd." It's <laughs> exactly. That's yes, what Roger to Ebert be clear, does. I meant RogerEbert.com, the reviews by Nick Allen. Jesus, yes. I'm sorry, it's late. It's late, <laughs> damn it. We've been doing this podcast for like 100 years. Also, so, yeah. I like what Steven says. It, it's not the bends, it's a benefit. 
Ah, the let the puns begin. Stephen hey, came up with that. Hey, if you have any Ben puns, viewers, throw them in the chat. Throw them in, in as a comment. It's totally fine. Have nothing to say about Midsummer. Just Ben puns. Uh, on that note, we will see you next week for Hagazusa. Thanks for if you made it through this entire film you you've traversed really you're danny i mean you've gone through hell uh so anyway we'll see you next week for hagazusa thanks for watching check us out on social media facebook instagram and twitter and uh every sunday night uh 6 p.m usually 6 p.m pacific standard time we do a movie we're doing hagazusa a couple couple other uh films coming up after that but i think we're going to end the full core uh segment with hagazusa so we'll see you next week have a good night take it easy